everyone. We're so glad to have so many people online today and joining us for today's training. Um, my name is David Hainick, and I'd like to also introduce Elizabeth. We'll say a little bit more about ourselves in a few moments, but Elizabeth. Hi, uh, good to see a couple faces that are sharing their faces. Um, we encourage if you wanna be on video, that's wonderful, it's lovely to see you. Um, despite the fact that we won't be using audio uh, for participants, we'll just be using the chat box for chatting, but it's still nice to see faces. <laughs> so I wanna first start with just an uh, introduction um, on myself and then I'll hand it over to Elizabeth. And the reason I'm just gonna share a little bit about my background and who I am is so you know what sort of perspectives I'm coming from. Um, so uh, I'm a licensed clinical social worker and I recently moved to LA from uh, New York City and I spent four years in New York City. And prior to that, I lived in New Orleans. So from 2004, right before Hurricane Katrina and then for 11 years, uh, called New Orleans home. And now I'm happy to be here in LA and hopefully here for the long haul. And uh, throughout my career, I, my focus has been in mental health. I've done a lot of administration, also done a lot of training. And um, the most recent direct service experience that I've had um, was in New York City right before I moved here to LA. And that was working for a really large nonprofit organization that was across all five boroughs. And there I was able to supervise um, eight different teams that all were very similar to FSP. So some of you may be familiar with the Assertive Community Treatment Model or ACT. Um, that was really where the focus of my work was, but we also had a couple other teams that were a little bit more intensive. And I might bring those up as some examples as the uh, afternoon goes on, because they're a really good example of recovery-oriented care. Um, so with that, Elizabeth. Yes, hi. Um, so similar to David, I moved to LA a little longer ago. Um, I guess it's been about a year and a half now uh, from New York City. I lived there for about eight years um, and worked in somewhat similar teams to FSP. I actually started working in uh, specifically harm reduction slash homeless outreach work and then moved into supportive housing and transitional housing uh, for folks with mental illness and then moved into running um, intensive mobile treatment, treatment teams that had a little bit more of a focus on uh, physical health uh, along with mental health. And since moving to LA, I joined PMHB in, gosh, just about a year ago. Um, so just to speak a little bit about PMHP, um, well, what we were a year ago changed uh, greatly in the past month, and we've actually just been in flux and building out as much training support as possible in the past year for full service partnerships and also uh, home teams, homeless outreach and mobile engagement teams. Um, David and I work more specifically with FSP training. So this is actually uh, a training that we did in person. We did it live um, eight times, one per service area back in January and February, if I'm getting those months right, I hope. <laughs> um, feels like forever ago now. So we, we did these live in each service area and then we wanted to do it again, hopefully catching some of the folks that weren't able to attend those in person because they were about, I think they were capped at about 60 people. So I see we've got 73 on today. Um, I think we'll probably have a, a, a bit more than that. So that's really exciting to be able to catch some of you that we did not get to see in person. And if you have attended this before, if you're recognizing our faces, it is going to be the same content. So you might not enjoy it, or maybe it will be helpful for you for reiteration. 
Um, but yeah, just to give a little bit of background about the uh, Public Mental Health Partnership, we're a partnership between the Department of Mental Health um, and UCLA. So the county has contracted us to provide these sort of uh, systems transformation support, technical assistance, capacity building, training support activities, uh, again, for FSP and home. Uh, we're not DMH employees, we're UCLA employees. And um, if we were doing this in person, we'd emphasize the importance of a safe space. And since we have the chat box and people will still be conversing, it's still a safe space. Um, nothing you share goes, gets reported back. We don't do anything like that. Um, and then the, the reason we're starting with this person-centered and recovery-oriented care topic, the reason why we started with that in January, uh, was because it felt like a really crucial core component to the work that you do. And in some ways, a lot of the content today will sound kind of con abstract, conceptual, and maybe at times really hard to like uh, think of in concrete application. A lot of it has to do with the spirit of the work we do, the ethos behind the work that we do. Um, and building on this, the next round of training collaboratives, which we have no idea if those will be in person or done remotely because we don't know what the next months will bring, um, but that would be on trauma-informed care followed by harm reduction. Um, we're also doing a number of trainings right now. We've really pivoted to just creating as much content as possible that feels relevant to the work of FSP and home teams and uh, relevant to this current context of the, how the circumstances of providing care has changed. So if you go on our website, which is pmhp.ucla.edu, we have uh, our trainings at home uh, listed there and you can look at some of the ones that we've been doing thus far via Zoom and they're recorded. Uh, we are going to be talking about trauma and some difficult uh, concepts around trauma. So if anything feels a little bit uh, difficult for you to listen to, or you're just not really in the mood to hear that right now, um, then feel free to excuse yourself. And the best part about it is you're at home or in your own workplace, so you can easily just step away. So uh, again, we want to make sure you're taking care of yourself. And Finally, we want you to just relax and, um, and hopefully enjoy today's presentation. Um, I want to mention that uh, continuing education units for social workers, LMFTs, um, are available for this presentation. And they will, they're only provided if you attend the whole thing. So you'll have to complete an evaluation on Friday at the end of the session. And you'll have to attest saying that, yes, I was there and I participated or I was listening the whole time. And then you'll get, immediately you'll get a, uh, a certificate and those CEUs are approved by the, uh, uh, by the California Board of Behavioral Sciences. So, um, so hopefully that'll help you towards your licensure. And um, so with that, I'll hand it over to Elizabeth. All right, so well, this is the most exciting slide of all, right? Learning objectives. Um, we are going to talk about recovery-oriented and person-centered care uh, today, and we're hoping that by the end of this, you'll be able to identify four specific stages of recovery-oriented care, including hope, empowerment, self-responsibility, and meaningful role. This is uh, just one of many sort of frameworks that can be used to describe recovery-oriented care in a series of phases or stages or components. Um, and this is the one we chose and we'll get into explaining a bit more about that. Um, 
in a minute. Uh, we also want to talk about the four, we want you to learn about the four ways in which hope, empowerment, self-responsibility, or meaningful role can be incorporated into clinical responses applied to real life vignettes reviewed in practice exercises and through reflection. Um, we hope that you can rate your current level of implementation of recovery-oriented care and plot it on a visual continuum between a deficit-based medical model of treatment and a strengths-based model of recovery. And we hope that you'll be able to document three ways in which bias impacts how you engage or plan treatments with people receiving services in FSP and ideally develop a half page improvement plan that lists three changes that you'll make over the next three months in your day-to-day -day clinical work for the purposes of increasing dignity and or respect. So to introduce recovery oriented care, I, I like to use a, a story or an analogy that Mark Reagans had developed. I'm not sure if anyone has ever has heard of Mark Reagans. He's actually, uh, he lives and works in Southern California in Long Beach. And if anyone here is from the village or is familiar with the village, you might be familiar with some of his work. And while there are many different versions and iterations of recovery-oriented care, we really felt that Mark Reagan would be a good source to, to really kind of base this training on because he is, uh, he is familiar with the culture of Southern California. And, um, and, and we thought that would be a, a good fit. So you'll hear me and Elizabeth talking about him and, uh, periodically throughout the training. Um, but just to give you a little background about who he is and, and, and why we chose his model specifically. Um, and I guess one more thing about him, he is a, a psychiatrist and um, you know, he's just done so much work around this model, which again, we'll, we'll share a bit more. So to paint this picture of what recovery oriented care um, is, I'm gonna share this really quick story. So a college back East was undergoing an expansion. The architect, or excuse me, an architect was hired to design and construct a new set of buildings and grounds. The following year, at the beginning of the new camp, at the, uh, oh, excuse me, following year at the opening of the new camp, campus, the university president and the architect stood together admiring it. Somewhat bewildered, the university president turned to the architect and said, it all came out very nicely, but you forgot the sidewalks. The architect replied, I didn't forget them. I'm waiting to see where people want to walk before I build the sidewalks. Now, normally we would ask for a lot of interpretations around that and what that might mean, but this format is a little bit different. It might make it more difficult to do that. But in essence, what Mark Reagans is demonstrating in that story is that the people who are providing the service, and in this example, we have an architect, um, they're building this to, to meet the needs of, of, of the students. And instead of assuming where the students and how the students would want to get to that front door and by building a path, maybe that goes straight from the sidewalk up to the front door, the architect says, you know what, we're going to wait. We're going to wait and see what they want. Maybe that's not the path that they want to take. And then we're going to build that sidewalk. We're going to lay the, that groundwork for the concrete in a manner that meets their needs and desires. So if we take that analogy, that might seem kind of silly from an architectural standpoint, but when you apply that to a mental health standpoint, it really, uh, it really describes how 
it's not up to us as treatment professionals, it's not up to us to decide what that path to recovery is going to look like for the individuals who we serve um, through FSP programs or through home programs or, or any, other, um, any other type of program. It's really up to that person who's receiving the services. They're the ones who know themselves best. They know what might work and maybe what won't work. And I think this concept of they're the experts of themselves is really important, particularly when talking about recovery-oriented care. And you know, designing a program using this lens, it doesn't, it, it means that we have to take their feedback into consideration, take their needs and their desires and wants. And Elizabeth is going to talk a little bit more about this um, uh, later on this afternoon. But it's really important to, you know, of course, to, to value and to, um, to value what the, the strengths that they have. And it's not just about treatment planning, but it's about the overall service utilization. And it's about being focused on the person as opposed to focusing on perhaps a disability or focusing on a mental health diagnosis or focusing on a problem. So recovery-oriented care from this perspective is really about, about designing services and an individual treatment plan that's based on what that individual truly needs and wants. And so it's not just about, you know, use it, stop using drugs, taking medications. It's let's look at this person as a whole person and address all of those needs and maybe even some of the barriers that might prevent them from accessing the care that we hope that they that they are interested in. So again, that, that's kind of a framework and we'll continue to, to build off of that. Um, but I, I'm curious, you know, I, I know we I just mentioned recovery oriented care, but I'm curious what comes to mind for you all when you think about the word recovery? And, you know, this, I feel like this term has really changed over time. Um, and feel free, if you could just type in the chat box, like what comes to mind for you when you think of just that concept recovery? And while you do that, I'm gonna go ahead and share a story uh, and then feel free to not listen to my story if you wanna type in the chat box or if you could do both, that's great. Um, but I had talked about how I, um, you know, I'd lived in New Orleans and I, I'd moved there a year before Hurricane Katrina. And then after Hurricane Katrina, we got back into the city as soon as possible. And I was there with a, a really good friend. And um, we had finally, after coming back into the city, there were very few restaurants open. And we were finally able to find a place to go eat at. And it was like the first time we've had a sit down dinner in quite some time. And I imagine we're all going to have those similar experiences as well once things open up whenever that'll be but anyways as we were in this restaurant they everyone was just a little bit more casual and uh and the waiters and waitresses had t-shirts on and on the back uh you know it said uh a recovery is not a sprint but it's a it's a marathon and the friend that i was with he he was also he's also a social worker and he looked at me and he's like you know, I don't know why they have to advertise that they are, you know, going through recovery. I appreciate that they're following 12 steps and maybe they had a drinking problem, but do you really need to wear that on your shirt? And, and it was kind of funny because I, I told him, I'm like, Sean, I'm like, I think they're talking about recovery 
as it refers to a entire community from a hurricane. And then we kind of laughed. He's like, oh my gosh, yes, of course that's what it is. But it was such a good example of how that concept of recovery has really, uh, has really shifted. So um, I, I see a ton of different comments in the box. So thank you all so much for this. This is really great. So I have, you know, recovery is about collaborative work, reintegration, what really important, providing strength and support. And, you know, that goes into Vanessa's comments, also support and collaboration. So it looks like Sarani and Vanessa had a very similar answers there. Um, Yvonne, I'm so glad you said that, sobriety, because I think that's kind of the, initially that's what first comes up for in my head, you know, when I went to grad school in early 2000s, uh, 2004, I believe, we talked about recovery from the perspective of substance use, and we didn't really think about recovery in terms of mental health or any other context, so yeah, that's definitely the one that comes to mind um, when I hear the word, but that's starting to change, of course. Um, but then we have healing and transitioning to a place of normalcy. Um, I really like that. Like whatever, uh, uh, whatever that is for that individual, of course, but absolutely. Um, generation and healing, again, support, overcoming trauma. Megan, I'm so glad you mentioned trauma and we're going to talk about that today. because That's such a, a key concept that we have to address. So we're going to spend some time talking about that. Um, we have regaining control, uh, regaining strength. And I like how, um, Raymond, you phrase that as regaining strength. So it's, and that's really what recovery is. And because recovery kind of assumes that something happened perhaps where, uh, where all of a sudden, or maybe not all of a sudden, gradually someone who had strength and control, maybe because of their mental illness, they seem to have lost some of that strength and control. So it's about regaining it. And then hopefully not just regaining it, but building upon that and becoming even a better, stronger person than they were. Um, feeling better, yeah, it's such a, it's a great, uh, great way to say that, Stacey. Um, healing and returning to balance, that's another way to, to, to mention that, um, like returning to normalcy, also returning to balance strength, of course, harm reduction. Oh, that's a really important one. Um, we're actually gonna provide some training collaboratives just on harm reduction, hopefully this fall, but incredibly important. Self-sufficiency, building resiliency, collaborative supportive process that includes individuals and their community. That is, that's a great point. Thank you, Erica, for bringing in the community piece. Um, it, it brings up the really important concept that someone going through recovery isn't doing that in a the bubble. They're not doing that in isolation. It requires their community, however they define their community to support them through that process. Um, again, independence and empowerment. So, oh, such great ideas. I appreciate all of you um, typing those in and, and sharing those with me. So let's look at what some of the actual definitions are because there are so many definitions. I mean, just looking at the comments, obviously um, those comments, uh, they all have a, a common thread to them. Uh, and, uh, but we'll look at some uh, definitions that came out of the literature and you'll see how closely aligned they are to what everyone here is talking about. And I, Denise, I do wanna also bring up your comment of recovery is constant and, and never ending. There's 
hardly a time where you are in a place where, yes, I am recovered and I don't need to do anything more. Like, no, it's always, it's something we always want to work for or work towards. So uh, the first definition is coming from um, uh, Dr. Anthony in 1993, and recovery is a deeply personal, unique process of changing one's attitudes, values, feelings, goals, skills, and roles. This is a way of living a satisfying, hopeful, and contributing life, even with the limitations caused by illness. Recovery involves the development of new meaning and purpose in one's life as one grows beyond the catastrophic effects of mental illness. And then the other one, that, the other definition that we'll uh, uh, bring up today is from SAMHSA. And they define recovery as a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. So as you see from these two definitions, there's, you know, there's a lot of subjectivity, there's some ambiguity involved in defining what recovery is. And even when we started this process of putting the training together and trying to figure out how do we want to structure this? I mean, we were a little bit overwhelmed because there were so many different, different ways to operationalize and to perceive this concept of recovery. And we definitely had a little bit of like, wow, where do we even start? What perspective do we want to uh, hold on to? And as Elizabeth had said, when talking through the learning objectives, she had mentioned that some of these concepts are really hard to think about in a, in a, in a concrete manner. Like they really are abstract. And so this really is about a framework in which we perceive the work that we do with the people that we serve. So hopefully these definitions will become a little bit clearer as we go on throughout the day, or they might get a little bit foggier, which is okay. And uh, we're open to hearing what, what your thoughts about recovery are and, and how it's defined in our presentation. So there'll be plenty of opportunity for that level of feedback. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth, before we go on to you, anything that I missed in recovery? No, not to me. Uh, I really appreciate everyone's, um, the words they threw up around what recovery means to them, what comes to mind. Um, and I, I think, you know, we can try and define it over and over again and everyone's perspective and sort of lens on it is just a little bit different and that just highlights the subjectivity of recovery. And, you know, it's not, it is neither um, definitely a goal, nor is it a, a, just a process. It could be both for some people, you know, it's, uh, it takes on many shapes and morphs over time and that is totally normal and okay. Um, so yeah, no, I wouldn't add anything. I just really appreciate everyone's words. And some of them, you know, if you put them next to each other, they're actually contradictory, right? We've got, I think, I tried to write some of these down real quick. Um, self-sufficiency and independence, or uh, let's see here, support, you know, both of those, depending on where someone is at and relating to their definition of recovery, what it means for them, what, what resources they have, what strengths they have, what goals they have, what challenges, what, what protective factors they've got, um, that's going to shape what recovery looks like for them. So for one person, self-sufficiency, which you'll, you'll sort of maybe hear this reflected in a stage of recovery we'll talk about later called self-responsibility in the framework that we're using today, There, that's that's maybe something that's really resonant. And then at the same time, people are sometimes in a place of needing just 
100% support. And that is, that's the need that they have to support their version of recovery at that time. So yeah, just highlighting the subjectivity of it. It's not linear. It's, it could be a circle. It could be a spiral. It could be any, it could be a roller coaster, whatever you want to imagine. Um, and then it, it just is uh, unique to every person's lens. So let's actually um, ignore the slide that's up here. Um, why don't you tell me what comes to mind when you think of person-centered care? So same thing. Any phrases, definitions, uh, concepts that come to mind when you think of person-centered care? And I'll give folks this. Okay, no judgment. I'll just read them as they pop up. And it's okay if some of them are the same that you would say for recovery-oriented care. To meeting a person where they are at, unconditional positive regard, great. Active listening, the skill of active listening. Uh, customizing care per individual needs. The stance of always becoming. Ooh, stance of always becoming. What a beautiful phrase. I hope I'm making sense of that correctly. Uh, a stance of always becoming. So just, I wonder if that means uh, is sort of being present-minded and allowing things to unfold, not putting people in boxes in the way you relate to them uh, as a provider. Um, meeting a human where they're at, being non-directive, collaborative again, acknowledgement, great. Care based on the individual person and their environment and support systems, yes. All right, so this slide up here, I think we know who this person is, Call Rogers. Um, or if you don't, not missing much, <laughs> we, can, we can describe a, a bit about why he's on this slide. So he's sort of the father of person-centered care um, in a sort of a more traditional therapeutic stance. And he really believed in the, the, the solid version of really letting the individual receiving the care guide the care and practicing um, care from an empathic uh, place that's non-directive and involves unconditional positive regard. Um, so again, this is an approach where the person receiving services is included in all aspects of their treatment. So uh, much power sharing um, and providers closely collaborate with the people they serve to support transparency, autonomy, and shared decision-making. It's a piece of recovery-oriented care. Again, these are not uh, hard and fast terms with set definitions. These are just these, these concepts, these, these ethical uh, sort of existential philosophies that guide the care that we do. And then when the rubber hits the road, when we are providing services, they influence everything we do. They influence how we phrase questions. If we phrase questions in ways that uh, sound directive or like they're leading or agenda setting or whether we ask things in open ways that are a little bit more like MI styled um, to really elicit what a person is thinking, feeling, and what their goals are. Unconditional positive regard, that can come through in what we say, how we look, uh, whether we look uh, like we're regarding someone positively or not. So this is, there are all these discrete ways that these uh, pieces come through. Again, we're gonna talk more today kind of about the conceptual, but all the same. And a little later, we'll, we'll get into some, some practical application. All right, so we also like to think of person-centered care in contrast to illness-centered care. So moving a little bit away from the Rogerian definition, let's think about person-centered care in terms of, again, having the individual be the focus of the treatment and maybe having the relationship 
with the individual from the provider be the, be the backbone of, of care, of treatment versus illness-centered. And up here on the slide, we've got this list of comparisons. Um, and we really, illness-centered care is something that exists. That, that's the medical model, right? If someone is going to see their primary care doctor for a medical issue, it's probably illness-centered care, unless they're going to an integrative health that does you know, sort of a holistic approach. Typically, it'd be medical model slash illness-centered care, right? And in between illness-centered and person-centered care, there are a couple of other models of care that people have uh, described, some that are um, maybe a bit more rehabilitative, so they sit somewhere in between these two uh, polar opposites. And I, I think when we've talked about this, this dichotomy, this comparison with people who work in FSP, we hear so often you know, the, the structure, the, the billing, um, how we have to write notes, how, what, uh, someone, how someone meets criteria to be enrolled and receive care is illness-centered, right? We gotta look at deficits, impairments, diagnoses, and that is what it is. Um, maybe there are ways to change that in the future, but for now that's, that's sort of the this structure you're working with. And then we hear from many people that the care they're providing is really person-centered, that they find a way to work within this really illness, deficit impairment, diagnosis-focused structure, and be person-centered at the same time. And so what we're, we're pitching to you today is a bunch of ways that you can do that, that you can work within your, your, the requirements of your job and still be really person-centered and the importance of that. So why it's important, we're gonna get into a good bit today. So up here, we've got illness-centered versus person-centered. Illness-centered, the diagnosis is the foundation. Person-centered, the relationship is foundation. Um, how about the third one? Services are based on diagnosis and treatment needed versus services are based on personal suffering and health needed. Now, are those two different things? I, I don't know. I think, you know, personal suffering doesn't necessarily equal diagnosis. And in an illness-centered model, you're trying to sort of extinguish symptoms. You're trying to resolve symptoms. And person-centered, we're trying to reduce personal suffering. So let's say someone could maybe not have all their symptoms reduced, uh, but find other ways to lead a more enriched life to balance out their level of suffering. The person-centered approach really allows the whole person to be viewed and considered so that it's not just about, we've got to target in on these symptoms and reduce them. We've got to treat this problem. It becomes, let's look at the whole picture here. If, we, if we're having trouble treating the diagnosis or the symptoms, what else can we do to support this person? Um, we've also got, uh, let's see here, use techniques that promote illness control and reduction of risk of damage from illness. Use techniques that promote personal growth and self-responsibility. You'll notice that many of these are just using different words that are more strengths-based. And that can be a really, really critical piece. Much of this is the same, except for the person-centered lens zooms out and looks at more components and it's strengths-based and more positively framed. Treatment is just one piece of the help that can be provided to someone. And we're gonna hammer home <laughs> how important it is. Uh, and I think you all know this, the relationship that you have with someone will matter so much more than any therapy or medication that they ever have. So much healing can come from the relationship and it can't happen actually without the relationship in terms of the services you're providing. Um, so that help needed part, you know, that, that is completely dependent on 
the dynamic, the rapport, and the trust, uh, the mutual connection that occurs with the person that you're serving. Um, we've got this little continuum up here. This continuum has changed multiple times since we've done this presentation. It used to have in the middle here a stabilization model and then a rehabilitative model with illness center and person centered at the end and having numbers anchored to it. And we found that while we were doing this training, that didn't feel very good to some of the people who were medically trained, like nurses and psychiatrists. And some people who really have worked from this framework that maybe this is, they've worked in hospitals and this has been the language that they've known. But we don't wanna say illness centered is bad. Illness centered has a history and a purpose. We are just trying to expand. So what this really could look like are concentric circles where illness centered is in the middle and you've got person-centered outside of it, just being bigger, looking at more, more pieces of the, of the puzzle for each individual. Um, and I don't know if people, how do, you, how do you feel? Do you feel like you're welcome to comment? Do you feel like your work that you do or the, the team that you work on or the program you work for, you don't have to specify which of those is more illness-centered or person-centered? Welcome to comment. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with doing illness-centered work. That is. It is certainly how um, a lot of Department of Mental Health systems are set up, just because that is their base out of uh, medical necessity, person-centered. Benita, great. Okay. I feel like my work has been pretty person-centered when I worked in New York, and I don't think I mentioned I'm a social worker. I, I, I feel like much of the, the heart of the work that I've done is super person-centered. A lot has been based in harm reduction, which is about as I'd say as person-centered and autonomy supportive as you can get. Um, but the last program I ran really focused around uh, physical illnesses, so like medical diagnoses being criteria as well as mental health diagnoses to be enrolled in the program. So much of what we did was extremely medically focused. It was very illness-centered. Um, and I, I'd say I worked in an agency that was, you know, if we put these numbers back up here, it was like a nine or a 10 towards person-centered but my program was really falling a little bit more in the middle, um, dead, dead in between illness-centered and person-centered. We've got some concepts, some comments up here. Uh, Maxine, you feel like your, your work uh, feels a little bit more illness-centered. Aya, you're saying you try to incorporate both illness and person-centered work in our program. We try very hard to meet in the middle, yeah. And Karen, social workers strive for person-centered. Clients often look to the MD as the be all and end all. So educating is part of the job. Yeah, we've heard this before. Plenty of people who are really uh, system familiar, who have been in treatment or been in and out of different um, care settings for, for years and years, or maybe just had many physical or uh, psychiatric issues ongoing, they're really accustomed to a power dynamic possibly that either makes them really kind of want to be to be regarded in a, a sort of patient provider dynamic that is a little more illness-centered. And we'll talk a bit about uh, labeling in a few minutes and how for everyone it's a little different. Some people like their diagnosis. They like to have a name for something. They like to be a patient receiving treatment for this diagnosis. And it, it answers a lot of questions about why their life has been the way it is. And other people really don't like that. And it's a negative thing and they suffer from the internalized stigma from it. So with that, you've got loads of different people relating in different ways. And some people want to be sort of the client patient model. And they want to see their provider, their doctor, whoever, their social worker as an expert. Um, they wanna have faith in the treatment that they're receiving and that works for them, that narrative works for them. 
All right. Assam, you try to do both, definitely illness at first for insurance reasons, but we thread in person centered throughout intake and then and then focus, sorry, you thread in person throughout intake and then focus on person centered. Um, Raymond, do you feel like your program utilizes more illness centered, but I would prefer utilizing person centered. Great. So today we're going to talk about ways you can do that, that, that don't upset the structure that you're working within right now, uh, ways to, to be impactful, to really enhance the person centeredness uh, in your care. And Stacey, you want to do person-centered, but to build Medi-Cal must be illness-centered. Yeah, right. This is where California's at right now. Um, some states have, have pushed this. They've they found different ways to, to bill for, for problems that aren't so diagnostic. And in time, that's probably the way things will go here. But this is what we're working with right now. All right. Yeah, and I was just going to add, Elizabeth, such a good point about it. And a few people had mentioned that because of insurance, DMH, Medi-Cal. You know, when, so, you know, when I was supervising ACT teams, those are all reimbursed through um, uh, managed care organizations. And so we really had to make sure that we were uh, basing everything off of medical necessity. And I'm sure everyone here who's listening is, is familiar with that. So we did our best to be person-centered, but I really do feel like our ACT programs were a little bit more illness-centered. However, we then got a contract through, the, through New York City and it was purely grant funded. And it was really neat because we didn't have to prove medical necessity. It, the referrals came straight from the city. They just wanted us to support, encourage uh, their recovery. And they were some of the most, uh, some of the most uh, challenging individuals to work with and that, um, services before have not been very successful. So, you know, often going into hospitals and frequently homeless, oftentimes struggling with substance use. So some of those, again, it, like well, probably most of the people who are watching today are, are familiar with, but because we didn't have an insurance company or, you know, or government authority who was um, who was like really overseen and funding this. I mean, New York City, of course, is a, a government authority, but still they, it was just grant funds. So it was really cool to see how person-centered we can be because we didn't have to do all of those things that some of our ACT teams did. We didn't have to make sure everything was based upon their diagnosis. And we didn't have this timeline of, you know, after two years, this person needs to be off your caseload and they, because we have to make room for more people. Like we had so much freedom and flexibility with this. And like, there was no time limit and the caseload was incredibly small. It was um, for a team of 10, they only had, I believe it was 27 uh, service recipients. Now, obviously it was a really expensive program, but because I was able to see that work, uh, it really highlights the points that everyone's making here that, yeah, our bureaucracies and our governments and, and insurance companies do make it a little bit more difficult to be person-centered. But again, it's not, I don't mean that to be a, a criticism because there's also this, um, the need to, to be accountable for, for dollars spent. And, and of course, insurance companies need to watch their bottom line. And there's so many, you know, politics and other things that I, I, I wouldn't want to get to in this format, but I, I get it and I understand why those parameters are there. But yeah, we, 
we certainly can empathize with how it does in fact make it difficult to be person-centered when the things around us are telling us to be more illness-centered. Yeah, thank you for uh, mentioning that, David. I love hearing that comparison between those two teams, the ACT teams that you worked with, and then that sort of, here's a block of money and serve these people. And right, there's, it, so it seems like a really easy thing to do, but of course that's rife with challenges as well in terms of making sure there's accountability for uh, helping people. And the same thing applies when, you know, when you look at outcomes, what are the outcomes that matter and the care that we're providing you know, I think when, if an outcome is the person created some goals and met those goals, that would be a really person-centered way to figure out if, if a team was uh, doing a good job, if they were doing their work effectively. Uh, that's not really the way that most programs are set up. We're set up for um, pure hospitalizations and whatever other sort of quantifiable, not, not these sort of qualitative uh, or quality of life goals that we we really want to still prioritize. So it's a marriage of the two and the work you do is hard and trying to do both. Really appreciate that. So one more slide for me. And then I think we switch back to you, David. Uh, just one highlight. So I think I've covered this, but with a recovery approach, our goal is to assist <clears throat> assist persons living with mental illness to lead self-identified, so their version of enriched lives. And the belief is that persons living with mental illness want and deserve more than symptom relief, stabilization, medication, supervision, and treatment. And they deserve all of those things if that's what they need and what they are willing to engage in. Medication, so huge for so many people. It just isn't the end, end all and be all, right? So we want to look beyond that. We want to make sure we're paying attention to what is, what does a person really want? How do they identify? What do they want in their life? What are their goals that have to do more with their sort of life role or their purpose or their values? How, how can we also at the same time of making sure they're stable, making sure we, we know how to respond. Uh, we both, you and the person you're serving, know how to respond to the crises that they go through. Um, what medication, what forms of treatment really work for them, but also who do they want to be? Um, who were they uh, before they were in a position where they were really in crisis or in distress frequently? Um, do they want to work? Do they have family? Do they have a role in the community they want to engage in or sustain? Um, who they want to be interpersonally. Those are all spiritually. These are all things that we also still have to talk about at the same time. And we'll have a better relationship and more effective treatment uh, relationship with the individual for doing that. And so now we're going to move into why, why recovery-oriented care. And I, I hope we're able to demonstrate this over the next hour, I, I guess the next hour and a half. Um, and it, we spend a lot of time talking about why recovery-oriented care. And we recognize that we're actually not going to get into the, the phases necessarily or the stages of recovery-oriented care until Friday, because we just think it's so important to talk about the experiences that the people we serve have had in their lives that have made recovery so much more difficult. We wanna talk about these because they, they, they have served as barriers and they continue to serve as barriers. So 
you know, as somebody had I, uh, pointed out when we were talking about, you know, what does recovery mean? Someone had mentioned trauma. So like, that's definitely one of the things that we are going to talk about today because it is such an important factor in the lives of those we serve. And we'll start with talking about stigma, which I'll do in a few minutes. And Elizabeth is going to talk about labeling and bias. So all of these concepts you have, I, I'm pretty sure most of you have, have heard of these before, but we really need to emphasize them today because the people we serve through our FSP programs and, and our outreach programs, they haven't been, the systems that have been in place for them previously have not been successful. And perhaps some of those reasons are maybe other providers, maybe other programs, maybe other intensities of service didn't address these, these complexities that really impact how they experience the, their daily life. So recovery-oriented care, aside from recognizing that people experience stigma, trauma, labeling, and bias, it also gives the control back to the person who's receiving services. I, I think so often clients feel as if they are just the service recipient and it's up to the provider to dictate and tell them what treatment is going to be like. And, and we really have to shift that perspective because we know that it hasn't always been very successful for some people, absolutely. But for many of those that we work with that you all see every day, we know that taking control away from somebody isn't always helpful. And we know that that is still necessary. There are times where we have to do a 5150 or inpatient is necessary. But when those events are over, we wanna make sure that the individual who, who we're trying to care for has as much control as possible when they're navigating these, uh, again, these complex systems of care. So I'm gonna, I, I will start with first talking about stigma. And we'll spend the next about uh, 10, 15 minutes talking about stigma. So I think most people know what, what stigma means, but you know, as always, when I start to do, when I start to put together a training material and resources, as sad as it is, I always start with Google. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, well, what comes up if I do a Google search on stigma? So I did that. And the first thing that came up, of course, is the, the definition of stigma. And, and that was important. And, and so when I read the definition, it was from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So I, part of me is I'm not looking at the camera. I'm going to look at one of my other screens to read the definition just so I get it right. Um, but the definition said, defined stigma as a mark of shame or discredit. And then it had in bold letters, stain, S-T-A-I-N. And that really, um, that really took me aback. Like I, I just, when I started to perceive differences from this, perspective of those differences are a stain, it was really, it, it was really shocking. And, and I have to also acknowledge, and normally both Elizabeth and I acknowledge this during this part of the training, but, you know, we come from a perspective of white privilege. And, and so from that perspective, and for me being a, a, a white man, like, you know, I haven't, I, it, I could only imagine how difficult it could be to feel the stigma that society perpetuates 
when you're of a different color or when of when you're of a different gender. Um, you know, of course, I I do have some areas in my life. Um, you know, you know, my sexual orientation puts me in a in a class that's different than most, but it's still very different from the stigma that we that people experience when we look at skin color and language and ethnicity and gender. So I want to put that out there because. Um, I think it's really important to acknowledge that, that, you know, I may not be the best person to be talking about stigma because here I read this definition and it says stain and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've, I've never thought about it like that. And, and so with that said, I have these birds up on the, on the screen and clearly three, well, not clearly, some people may not be able to see color well, but I have three blue birds and I have one bird that's green. And if we look at these birds from this perspective of a stain, if I told you that um, that that green bird, it's that green bird is not a green bird. It's a bird that is stained green. Like you all would think I was crazy. And now imagine how that must feel. And some of you, I'm sure, uh, do know how this feels. Um, to say that if you don't fit this concept of a, you know, of a emotionally healthy white male with Christian background and is a heterosexual, if you fall outside that domain that something about you is stain, that feels terrible because what do we do with stain? We try to remove them. We try to hide them. We try to get rid of them. I, I you know, I, I'm a little bit of a freak around this, but if I stain a shirt, I'm not going to wear it anymore. I'm going to get rid of it. And so we, no one, in our society should ever be compared to as a stain. And, you know, while I'm focusing on kind of these main concepts here, you know, just imagine what it's like for those that we serve. So perhaps they, they fall into a different category of, um, of race or ethnicity, but then on top of that, or in gender and orientation and all of those things, then on top of that, they have a serious mental illness. And on top of that, they might also be homeless or they might be using um, drugs or alcohol. So we're just layering on, like staying on top of staying for this individual. And I could only imagine, and I, I don't know what it's like, I, you know, I, I could only try really hard to empathize that it must feel like the society wants to erase you, wants to get rid of you. So we want to shift that dynamic. And we have to, the only way we can do that is first acknowledge that stigma does have a really intense and direct impact on how we work with our individuals. And those stigmas are perpetuated in the work that we do. It's perpetuated by FSP programs. And I'm not saying that to be critical. I just point out a, a reality. I am, it's, but also stigmas perpetuated by society. I perpetuate stigmas. I try not to. Um, but I make lots of mistakes, so I'm part of that as well. Media perpetuates the stigma um, for the people that we serve. So being cognizant of those things is just super, super important. And, you know, I, I could give a few examples. And of course, if anyone wants to type in an example of how stigma is perpetuated, particularly for those who serve, feel free to do so. Um, but I, I think of a few examples, particularly with, with mental health and how, you know, oftentimes in the news, um, unfortunately, oftentimes we hear about mass shooting events 
And uh, one of the first things that comes up, and I'm not saying this from a, I'm not intending this to be a, a, a political perspective, uh, but oftentimes what comes up in the news is, okay, we need to look at gun control and should we allow people with mental illness to buy guns? And and what, what kind of message does that say? What does that perpetuate? To me, when I hear that message, I think, wow, people with mental illness are dangerous. They can't be trusted with guns. And, you know, people with mental illness, they are dangerous. And people without mental illness are also dangerous. It has nothing to do with mental illness. And I had this realization when I was talking with my partner about this, and I, and we do honestly have conversations like this sometimes, but when we're talking about gun control, and again, not, not a political statement, but I, I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm not allowed. I, if we pass some of these laws, I'm like, I have a mental illness. I wouldn't be able to buy a gun. No, I'm scared to death of guns, so I have no desire to buy one. But <laughs> like when that realization came to me, I'm like, wow. I, I, again, it was one of those moments where I was existing with privilege, and and fortunately, I was able to empathize with that with that side. But um, wow, it was really eye-opening for me. Um, Karen here has a, a comment in that it's perpetuating entertainment, how people are portrayed in movies and TV shows. Yeah, I, I 100%, I completely agree with you. Um, I don't watch enough TV to have good examples. Like I, I tend to watch CNN and that's my show, <laughs> which may not be the most healthy thing right now. Um, but but yeah, we, we know that's true. I mean, I when I was driving to work every day, I would drive down Sunset Boulevard. Um, I live in Hollywood and our offices in Westwood and, you know, it would take me a very long time, but I would see those billboards every single day. And, um, and if you were to count how many billboards had people of color versus white people, like it, it's still so shocking to see that disconnect there and that's in Hollywood and of course that's a single snapshot and that's you know not evidence-based it's simply me on my commute home um those days I kind of miss commuting home from work we'll get there one day again <laughs> but um that was really you know I I had that observation before as well and then uh you know there are some examples in the media even here in in LA County where you know of course homelessness it's a lot of attention and it deserves a lot of attention. It is a significant issue. Um, and, you know, the LA Times, I, I think for the most part, they do a really great job of trying to cover those stories. But then sometimes if you look at just the, the heading, the, uh, the headline of, of a news story, like homeless population, you know, causes public health crisis. And it's not that any of those things are wrong, but I imagine if I was somebody who was homeless and I, just saw that like I'm contributing to a public health crisis, I'm like, wow, that, that makes me feel like I'm a stained person. I would imagine that makes me feel like I'm a, a stained person. Um, and we know that just walking down the street and even, you know, I, I do this myself, again, part of the problem here, but how often do we acknowledge the presence of somebody who's maybe lying on the sidewalk um, you know, we look over them, we look past them. Sometimes we actually have to step over or around them. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that we have to say hi to everybody or greet everybody. That may not be the answer, but it's just to recognize that, um, you know, 
we're uh, we're in some ways perpetuating that because we're treating them as less than or we're not seeing them like we would see somebody else that we pass by on the streets and maybe would make eye contact with and say hi or something like that. Um, not that that happens too often in LA and in New York, it certainly didn't happen. <laughs> but spending so much time in New Orleans where people were, you know, a little bit more uh, eager to connect passing by each other. So. Anyways, as I continue to go off on a tangent, if anyone else has any other comments or questions or any other examples of how stigma is perpetuated, feel free to type those in. Um, otherwise, I think I will pass it back to you, Elizabeth. Thanks, yeah. Um, I keep thinking about stigma right now um, related to uh, coronavirus and um, the power uh, that it's had when media or certain political figures um, or just anyone uh, has chosen to mis mislabel um, the, the virus as where it was originally, um, where the original outbreak was and what what's occurred at least in this country, and I, I couldn't speak to other countries, but the instances of crimes and assault against Asian Americans that have sprung up from that and the unwillingness to eat at restaurants that might be of Asian cuisine. Um, I've thought so much about just why that is such a, a human thing for some, some humans to reach for and uh, in times where they're trying to maybe uh, make sense of a distressing matter or whether it's just pure ignorance you know i think in every case it's it's different um but it is you know we'll talk about this with implicit bias um we all kind of carry little pockets of things that can interrelate with stigma um or that we can you know practice perpetuating stigma by uh not taking action in certain instances and sometimes by the overt things that we do even if it's unintentional um uh so if anyone yeah if anyone wants to share where they see uh stigma perpetuated or not perpetuated um, in, uh, in, in your work. And, you know, I, I think it, I can think of some instances from when I worked on or ran clinical teams, what, where I, you know, it could be something really, really subtle um, that would come out, uh, something in the language used. And we're going to talk about labeling language uh, right now, but are there any instances that come to mind? I'm gonna, I see a couple of comments up here that I'm gonna review and make sure we give a little attention to. Um, I see someone got disconnected, glad you're back. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people believe that homeless people are exhibiting psychotic schizophrenic symptoms. Uh, the people that are exhibiting those symptoms are harmful and dangerous, right? And what's that about? Is that just ignorance, not understanding, not having a lot of information? Someone's acting in a, in, in a way that's different and some individuals would process that and they've been given messages from society or media that have taught them to identify that as dangerous. Yeah. Um, so when you say when you hear about mass shootings taking place anywhere in the world, I and many people from Islam faith-based backgrounds, Muslims and or Middle Eastern backgrounds immediately experience high anxiety, worry and increase in mental health symptoms. I'm sure any clients with similar backgrounds experience this. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, that's a real thing. Uh, what this country did uh, following 9-11 in terms of um, the messaging that was incredibly pervasive and 
but won't comment on the inaccuracy of it, but I'm pretty sure we could all uh, agree that it was, it was purposed um, to promote stigma and to uh, oppress um, an, a certain group of people um, with different motives. That's, that, what is that created now? We've, we've seen, uh, you know, people of that identity, your identity are, are gonna have very valid anxiety and worry and uh, vigilance or hypervigilance uh, regarding whether they're going to be viewed in that way and experience uh, negative impact because of that, for sure. Um, Benita, you say stigma is also perpetuated by the individual as they internalize the treatment they have received. Got it. I, I work with a homeless population and even once housed, many clients feel that people can tell they were homeless. It makes reintegration very difficult. So the stigma that we've experienced, it not, it not only uh, can impact whether, whether we are cued to be concerned and uh, take care of ourselves or whether we've experienced trauma from, the, from that, um, it's also something that can be internalized and make someone aware that they don't know if they'll ever be able to sort of separate from the stigma that they feel like they've experienced. Uh, not understanding, yes, okay. Okay, all right. Stigma that people experiencing homelessness are lazy or not contributed to society, for sure. Um, and as a client internalizes the stigma associated to their issue, they adjust their behavior to meet that idea. Uh, Hassan, you're saying you think stigma is well related to people with mental illness are dangerous. Yeah. So a lot of the same themes being brought up. So let's talk about labeling. Labeling is, this is a way that stigma is perpetuated. We, we have to use labels, right? Um, we, we use them for positive means in a lot of cases. Uh, it shortens our conversations. It shortens what we write because otherwise we would be being objective and descriptive and using lots of adjectives um, and using lots of words. And instead we try and categorize experiences, sort of typical things that happen into labels. Um, uh, we try and uh, not talk in long, long paragraphs when we're trying to communicate a maybe commonly understood idea. That said, uh, Labels carry stigma because then they get associated with all sorts of other meanings than the initial maybe sort of pure and objective meaning that was held. Um, so I'm going to talk about modified labeling to start with. I'm going to do a little bit of reading here from the screen. Sorry. So modifying la modified labeling theory posits that socialization leads individuals to develop a set of beliefs about how most people treat mental patients. Um, when individuals enter treatment, these beliefs take on new meaning. The more patients believe they will be devalued and discriminated against, the more they feel threatened by interacting with others. They may keep their treatment a secret, try to educate others about their situation, or withdraw from social contacts that they perceive as potentially rejecting. And such strategies can lead to negative consequences for social support, support networks, job and, jobs, and self-esteem, right? So... This is how people cope with being labeled, sort of this anticipatory coping of, I know what this means. I, I've been given the label of having mental illness. I'm well aware of what society thinks. They, they tell me in the media, they, you know, I, I hear sort of like these uh, really pathologizing words around this. I, I think that there's something wrong with me. And I know other people think this. So how is that person then going to sort of conceptualize their engagement and treatment and their, their willingness to share this part of their life 
with any sort of openness or pride. So what you see then is people kind of shutting down about that, um, or maybe not. We've got in here also that people will try to educate others and be a little more sort of proactive, and I guess that could maybe cause positive or negative uh, impacts. Um, but really the gist here is people will disengage from the things that actually will support their recovery, uh, social support networks, jobs, self-esteem, you know, this is that internalized stigma piece that um, I can't remember who it was when it was mentioning, uh, right, Benita, you were saying that. Um, and, you know, there are all sorts of labels. We've got diagnostic labels. Again, we use those because if we, you know, listed out all of the words to describe someone's psychiatric picture every single time, it would take a long time. And we've got to have that to sort of figure out what a treatment protocol is, what what medications are appropriate? What have they? What medications have been approved to treat what? What um, it's a, it's a necessity for insurance just to be accurate in how we communicate. At the same time, we can use those labels and use them in a way that's less stigma-producing or perpetuating. Uh, there is a way of talking about someone who maybe carries a label of schizophrenia that doesn't just make them be that label. It allows them to be a person first and foremost, that has a label of schizophrenia. So maybe it's a person, you can refer to someone as someone who has uh, been diagnosed with schizophrenia or someone who experiences symptoms commonly categorized as schizophrenia. Many ways that you can phrase this so you're not calling someone a schizophrenic, which is the label. We have the diagnostic term, but when we turn that into a noun, a schizophrenic, it becomes a label that can be damaging. Um, what do we think about the words clients, Consumer, participant, member. Does anyone use any of those in particular? Patient, maybe even? Feel free to let me know. Client, we got a client. I've used different ones in different settings. I, my first work, I, before I lived in New York City, I went to grad school and worked in Seattle and I worked in hospitals. I actually worked with people who had been traumatically injured and followed them up after their injuries uh, throughout their care and provided uh, therapy. And we called them patients. They were also research study participants. So, I mean, it was whew, the least person-centered possible um, in terms of how we spoke about uh, them and in labeling. Um, but then I moved into sort of community mental health and it became clients, and then I moved into a really person-centered place, and it became consumer or member or participant. You know, and I found, same as we were talking about before, it's really important to ask the person we're serving how they like to be referred to. Um, and it's not like you're going to be walking up to someone saying, hey, client, how's your day? But you might be on the phone with a doctor you're trying to schedule an appointment with for them, or you might be writing notes that they read. Um, especially if you're sharing some of the some of those with them and doing that sort of transparent documentation, uh, how you refer to them can make a difference, and that can also inform the power dynamic and stigma. So if someone really if, if feeling like a client is something that's super uh, stigma laden for them, they're like, oh, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. I want to be just anything with that. Um, maybe there are other options. Maybe it's participant, member, consumer. Uh, maybe it's always just like, hey, I'm Joe, and I'm receiving services. So this is a good sort of like, it's a gimme. It's an easy thing to talk to someone about. And you can do the same thing with diagnostic labels. So if you're doing an assessment and you determine that someone has, carries a certain diagnosis and you're talking about that with them, ask them how they feel about it. What does it mean to them that 
they have been, uh, they seem to have the set of symptoms that look like bipolar one. You can ask them what that means to them. Some people, again, want to take on that diagnosis and be like, I'm bipolar, I'm bipolar. I have an identity around this now. This makes sense. I'm going to go to groups and I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to share. That can be positive. Also, some people can become, a, uh, feel limited by the diagnosis and like it's a, it's a burden, it's a weight on them. So exploring that, figuring out the meaning and giving someone the choice and the power to, to decide what language they want used in their treatment process, in their conversations with you and what they want, you know, what they want to advocate for. So we've got some other comments up here. Client, member, member, consumer, community members, consumers, clients, client. Client, however, at the VA, patient. Yep, I work for the VA too. Patient, patient, patient. Client, patient, depends on the setting. Depends on the setting, okay. I always try to use client instead of patient to give others more agency as possible. Participant, to show they are involved in treatment. Love that. Um, we've also heard partner when doing this training. And that's great because it's full service partnership. And I know some people really struggle with getting folks to partner in their treatment to get make sure you're both um, pulling your weight and working on that individual's recovery together. So partner is a great way to reinforce that. Um, let's see. All right. One of my clients uses diagnosis to wiggle out of taking responsibility. He said, I'm bipolar. That's why I can't do this. Interesting. Okay. So your client has done is relating to his, his diagnosis as a limiting identity. And it felt like for you that that made him sort of be like, I I'm limited. I can't, I can't expand beyond that. So that's a, that's an interesting uh, sort of uh, clinical dynamic and issue to then kind of work through and explore. Um, I think, I, I've, I've definitely experienced a little bit of that before too. So really getting into the meaning of, okay, well, what does that mean for you? Um, and talking with them around their, their, their goals for the future, you know, what, what they, who they really want to be, what their values are, what their ideal sort of self would be. Those are ways to think through, um, you know, someone may not, might not want to do something and maybe that is sort of excuse making, but maybe, maybe it's not, maybe they have, they really feel limited. Um, because what they've learned that this diagnosis means is that they can't do certain things. Um, so finding opportunities to discuss where they can become empowered and take self-responsibility, which we'll talk a lot about tomorrow. Okay. So labeling. Um, let's see, David is our artist. Um, he made this lovely uh, art, I'm calling it art, um, which is describing what we've been talking about. So... Society says to our little guy here, people with mental illness are messed up. And then he's told by a provider that he has a mental illness. And what does he think? I'm messed up. Straightforward. So just like labels can be negative and people can internalize sort of um, things that are harmful to them and uh, will reduce their chances of engaging in treatment or uh, sort of uh, positive, productive activities or sharing what's going on with them or believing in themselves and having self-efficacy. At the same time, people can take on labels that have positive meanings. So this is a slide uh, to highlight a study done by one of our PMHP colleagues, Lisa Davis, um, noting that there's evidence for people generating self-worth when they compare themselves to normative roles in society. So 
the more someone is independent, stably employed, and maintains social relationships, the higher their self-esteem. So here we can have people try to identify what other labels do they carry? Okay, they've got bipolar, whatever. They've got clients. They've got who knows what else. Um, but maybe they've also got uh, something like friend or employee. And this little guy here also, while he has uh, been informed he has a diagnosis of mental illness, he also works on movie sets and he can see that he's a valuable person in that way. And what we know is that higher self-esteem can potentially result in symptom reduction and improvement in mood. So this is really protective. So this is another thing you can do. Um, like, okay, so let's talk through the labels that can be potentially harmful or the ones that are really relevant to the treatment context. And then what else, what else is someone there? They might be a, a son or a daughter or a mother or a father or a brother or a sister. Um, they are someone maybe with um, interests or talents or other strengths that could be explored to define who they are. Has anyone found any good uh, strategies that they want to share in the chat when they've been faced with this issue of someone maybe being like, no, I can't do that. I can't take part in my treatment or I can't go to this appointment. I, you know, I, I've got this issue. This is why. And that's it. What do you, what do you say? Hassan, you usually try during intake appointments to highlight that even though they will get a diagnosis that it's not limiting, okay? And people are very resilient even with mental illness diagnoses. Okay, so talking about some, some examples, uh, maybe some sort of visions of recovery. I, I like to think how, how useful it is to have peers on the team in this instance. Um, for someone to say like, yeah, I can feel really limiting, uh, but you feel like you can't take on the tasks that you need to to support your recovery or whatever it is that you've got on deck. But here's here's how I did it um, and share strategies back and forth and offer that sort of mutual perspective. Um, and you also mentioned during intake, and I appreciate that. Um, let's see. Yeah, that was Hassan who said that. Uh, because that's something you can do from the outset of treatment is talk about sort of what responsibility will look like, what expectations there are in treatment. Um, that's something that, yeah, is sort of like, let's both wrap our heads around your vision of recovery, what your goals are, what it's gonna take to get there, and how that interrelates with uh, the symptoms you experience and the challenges that you're going through. Karen, you highlight their strengths, point out examples when they succeeded to show them that they are capable. Yeah, so some like behavioral activation stuff, right? Like coming up with a, sort of a, an acknowledgement, a, a concrete acknowledgement of the things that they have done and how they can extrapolate from that to do more. So really reinforcing their empowerment, their sense of self-efficacy. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I've had moments, gosh, even switching into this training on Zoom, I definitely had some moments of like, I can't do this, I can't do this. I can't do this, and I, I, I might not have blamed it on a diagnosis, but um, I certainly was blaming it on something else, and then I had to think through that whole, oh, wait, okay, you've, you've done some other similar things. Yes, okay, all right, and kind of coach myself into that. So same process, being strengths-focused. Maxine, you highlight their strengths and goals, yep. So connecting to the future, connecting or just what, what they want to be experiencing right now that they've got to take some steps toward, and then doing some goal-setting that's maybe in the SMART format. 
I usually just reflect that they feel limited by their diagnosis. So reflect that that's a feeling, okay? And then I try to explore with them ways that they can feel more empowered. It helps to take a stance of curiosity and compassion, right? So if we shut that person down when they're saying, I can't do this, I've got this diagnosis, we'll get into a power struggle. But if we can operate with, oh, wow, yeah, I can imagine that feels, real, this must feel super overwhelming right now or whatever is uh, reflective of their, what their thoughts and feelings are and genuinely compassionate um, and really humanizing and curious, that's, that's gonna potentially uh, provide a more workable situation. That's a great comment. Grace. Uh, so Ronnie, helping them identify things that they have accomplished despite their challenges placed on their life because of the diagnosis or symptoms. Yep. And Bonita, I like to let clients know that seeking mental health, uh, seeking mental health is a good thing. Um, we could use someone to talk things, we could all use someone to talk things over with. Isn't that the truth? And I do this because many clients have negative cultural perceptions about mental health care, right? So there's so much undoing, so much undoing of stigma and society's messaging around what it means to have a, a, a diagnosis of a mental illness. You know, that that's every conversation you have in this way, I, you know, I always immediately think of trauma-informed approaches and these little things we can do to create safety and control or to, or even taking this from a harm reduction lens. What can we do to, um, reduce the harms caused by internalized stigma. How can we sort of mitigate that and get someone to process it, but also hopefully embrace a perspective and internalize something different, internalize something that has pride and self-compassion. Okay, so let's go to break now. I really appreciate these comments. They're wonderful. I'm loving that uh, there's a way to have a vibrant discussion in this format with this training uh, when we did it in person. We relied so much on amazing audience participation to get a rich uh, understanding of these concepts. And it's great to see that people are contributing in the same way in this format. So keep it up, it means a lot. Um, okay. So we talk with our clients. Um, and as I mentioned, we also, we sometimes talk about our clients to colleagues or even team members. Um, and I think especially with team members, we can be more casual in our conversations and just assume that because the person knows you well, you work together, they, they probably can assume um, that you, you're not meaning any sort of judgment or you're not coming from a, a place of uh, meaning harm with the words that you use. Um, we also tend to do this if someone is of similar background to us. If I'm, you know, if I'm talking to someone that I know might be around my same age or is also female, I might be more inclined to use, to assume that I can speak freely and may, may even just resort to using labels just because it's a little bit easier sometimes. Um, Let's take an example of team communication and we're gonna transition from this into talking about person-centered documentation. But sometimes the communications we have don't have much to do with documentation. They have more to do with just communication. So up here, we've got this text message or maybe it's an email. Um, we're not gonna get into HIPAA compliance um, issues here. Um, maybe you are texting with your colleagues more so now. Maybe you're, I don't know how you're communicating with your team members at the moment since we're all remote uh, for the most part. 
Um, but in this instance, we've got me texting David saying, I want to let you know that I'm on my way back to the office. I tried to meet with Paul in his apartment, but he was hostile again. I just don't understand why he insists on being non-compliant. When he's on his meds, you can't even tell that he's a schizophrenic. Anyways, we'll talk more when I get back. So what do we think about this? What, if any, phrases or words do you think are maybe not great and why? So feel free to chat into the box. And if we don't get many answers, I'll just walk us through this one a little bit. Um, so we've, we've talked about stigma and labeling so far. Um, hostile and schizophrenic, Vanessa. All right. So what might be wrong with the first word we've got there? Hostile. He was acting hostile. I mean, ditto what Vanessa said. What's wrong with hostile? It's relative. Okay. So hostile to me might be, be something really different than what hostile means to Paul or Vanessa or anyone else. I, you know, he may have just like slammed the door and that might be hostile to me, or he could have been uh, threatening, you know, actually like making verbal threats and that might've been hostile, but it's not really clear here. Mostly what I'm talking about are my feelings. I'm pretty sure in this situation. I'm going to flip back through the chat. Um, it has a negative connotation, right? So it's assigning a bit of a judgment, uh, a values judgment, maybe even, like depending on how you, you take some of that language. Um, agreed, agreed. He could have just been upset or frustrated, right? We don't know much about Paul's experience when I use the word hostile. What if I had described exactly what he did? What if I had said, I'm on my way back to the office. I tried to meet with Paul in his apartment but he yelled at me through the door and called me uh, a bitch and wouldn't open the door and said, if I try and come in, he'll call the police. What if that's what he did? So that's really informative. We know then kind of the degree of what's going on. Um, it gives us a little, you know, using quotes gives us a clue to if we understand anything about the individual's baseline and how they usually communicate what, what's going on with them. Hostile, okay. Uh, agitated, symptomatic, list specific behavior. So behaviors, behaviors are critical here. Um, you could, you know, if, so, if someone's, someone's behavior can be described as a symptom, I, I, you could do that, but really it's important to be pretty objective and clear. So describing behavior. Um, maybe use words like it appeared to be, yep. All right, so let's talk about the label of schizophrenic. Uh, I'm gonna scroll back up, see. So someone just threw that one out and then Lorraine, you're labeling him as a schizophrenic would be better to say as he has schizophrenia, the other is labeling as he may feel humil humiliated, degraded or not good enough and doesn't fit into society, okay. Um, uh, you, Priscilla, you agree with Lauren when you mentioned that he can't tell he's schizophrenic when he's med compliant. So we've not only called this person a schizophrenic, we didn't mention that he experiences schizophrenia or whatever. We weren't specific. Schizophrenia looks really different for many people um, based on the, the huge variety of symptoms and presentation. Um, but we've made it something negative. Like you can't even tell that he's a schizophrenic. So there's this implied stigma, uh, this implied negativity, like it's something to hide. Uh, we're perpetuating stigma. I'm perpetuating stigma here as I'm texting David. 
Um, and the non-compliant part, you just don't, I don't understand why he insists on being non-compliant. I can't make sense of this person having choice over their treatment. Um, let's see, what else have we got? We've got, a, uh, Vanessa, you, you're linking um, the hostility and schizophrenia piece. So it kind of implies that schizophrenic equals hostile. What else is problematic here? So my language, I'm, I need supervision, I'm pretty sure. I think I need um, some support. <laughs> Maybe I'm burnt out and this is why I'm, I'm labeling my, uh, my clients. Um, and I'm, I might be a little, someone I think said the word insecure. Yeah, I'm, I'm being a little sort of defensive, like, well, he was hostile. Um, he's being non-compliant. I am seeking control. I am seeking power and control. That's the feeling I get when I read this at least. So what else, you know, I, I need some support, but what is this gonna do to David? When David goes to see Paul later in the week, He's going to go in with a with a, a, a an expectation, and he's going to anticipate that Paul might act hostile. And what happens when we expect that someone might act in an aggressive way? I, the best of us will check that re, check that sort of anticipatory reaction and not let it come through in our body language and our spoken words. But for a lot of people, that's going to come off with some guardedness, some automatic defensiveness. Um, and also David's not gonna do, he's not really gonna look at the big picture with Paul. He's gonna be a little zeroed in on these issues that I've raised. Um, all right, so Vanessa, he'll be guarded and it may lead to a hostile situation exactly. David will approach Paul with his guard up. David's gonna be on edge, yeah, yeah. And what if this was in a team meeting? Um, what would that do to the morale of the team? Have you, have you any, if you've experienced this, if you've experienced instances where someone starts sharing about a client and they use language like this, um, how does that, how does that affect the team? And it's probably a bit of a silent impact because not a lot of people are going to, I don't know, I could be wrong, but not, I can imagine in teams I've been part of, it was, it was rare instances when someone would be like, hey, I'm not really sure that I like that language. Uh, that's kind of, uh, I don't think we're looking at this person in a balanced format. We're not looking at strengths and other pieces of the picture here. It can kind of just set a bit of a, a tone of our clients are hostile and it's okay to sort of minimize them, decrease or depersonalize them really into diagnoses and uh, people that are described as they relate to us exclusively, which is not the reality. Paul has a very large and uh, colorful life. So it can cause a rift in the team, can lead to disagreements within the team, yeah. One uh, instance of doing this training, we had a comment from someone saying, yeah, but my, my team needs to be able to like blow off steam and I'm not gonna edit their language. I'm not gonna tell them they can't throw out a label when they're pissed off. I, I mean, if they need to do that, I'd rather them do it in a team meeting or with me. And I really appreciated that comment because it highlights that there's still like a, we're still humans. We're, we're not gonna use the most perfect, respectful language all the time. Why? Because we may have grown up hearing different things. Uh, this is part of what we're going to talk about with implicit bias. We just, you know, what I heard, grew up hearing and the, the stigma around fill in the blank, wow, whatever, um, the language I may have heard, that can just seep in, even if it's not what I really believe in, even if I don't see people as 
uh, labels or wouldn't sort of, I would be able to keep more perspective and understand that Paul was <laughs> yelling or slamming doors or whatever because of a very valid reason versus labeling him as hostile. Right, so we got a couple comments here. Um, the team can start to feel like we can't help this client because whatever, right? So that like, well, I can't do it because blah. Uh, labels that person and paints them in one particular way. Um, yep, true, but if this happens all the time, it should be contained in supervision because it can make others uncomfortable. Staff should focus on how they feel versus talking negatively about the client, right? So there's a, a time and a place and a balance here. We want to still reach for the ideal of speaking respectfully and always practicing person-centered communication, no matter what, and avoiding labeling and trying to check, uh, you know, our transference, seeking good supervision, making sure you're blowing off steam, probably with a supervisor, someone whose their their job is to guide and and support and contain um, what what's going on for you. They're they're, they're half therapists, right? Um, right. So. We want to avoid a little bit of this. And next we're going to get into some person-centered documentation uh, tips. Um, and then we're going to go through an exercise on uh, writing about clients. So I'm forgetting the name of this collaborative documentation. Okay. So I have spoken with some DMH employees, some FSP team members that do collaborative documentation. If you do that, please say, I let us know if that's something that you're doing. Um, I had not in the past, uh, I, Vanessa, wonderful. Um, <laughs> I had not in the past ever done uh, collaborative progress notes. I have done like treatment planning and assessments that are very uh, collaborative. And I was amazed to hear that some teams, awesome, so more people are, are doing that, that's great. Um, seems really uh, wonderful and in line with what we're talking about today, although perhaps uh, more complex and rife with some challenges. So simplistically, um, we were just gonna pitch that you should try and do your treatment planning and assessments with a person sort of with you, including them in that process, not just do, sort of doing the typing or writing down the answers that they say while not with them. Um, you really want to include them in this, in this process. They, it is their treatment plan, right? They, their voice has got to be in it. So with that, you can draw knowledge from your relationship. So you don't have to just go question by question by question. You can really think and expand on some things to get a more full picture uh, and inspire an individual to be more uh, active in how they uh, express their goals. Um, it's super important to listen and be present to the narrative and perspective, perspective on symptom nature and change, even, also, even if also completing the clinical assessment. So again, just sort of having that two-mindedness where you're, or three-mindedness, you're engaging with a person, you're thinking about all of your knowledge of them as this whole person and their narrative, and you're also thinking about what you're writing down. Um, oops, so sorry, didn't mean to jump forward there. Um, always, if you can, having a person sit with you and almost like alongside you if possible, if that's appropriate, so that they can see what you're writing on. If it's a computer, having that screen visible to them, constantly being like, making sure you've got their wording correct and checking with them and clarifying if, if, if you're paraphrasing something, if that paraphrase accurately described. Um, again, sticking to objective language, uh, describing behaviors, 
including strengths in balance with the deficit and impairment focuses that are really required. And I think a lot of you do this. That's what I've heard that you, you do balance that out with focusing on what protective factors and what strengths an individual has. Um, checking for jargon, uh, checking for like just lots of clinical wording that doesn't really just wouldn't make any sense to the individual. You always kind of want to make sure if you've if a person um, read their treatment plan that they'd understand it and be like, this is relevant and resonant to what I've what how I envision what I'm working on with my provider. Um, so, and I actually I think it's wonderful to give a treatment plan. Some some programs have a policy of ensuring that that is handed to each individual after it's completed. And you could, you know, I, I know there are arguments on why that wouldn't be appropriate in certain instances, but we wanna write like the client is sitting right there with us and we want to ideally have them sitting right there with us. Um, and making sure again, information doesn't minimize an individual's personhood. Um, we are talking about a human, not a, not um, a sort of a clinical topic. Um, and David has this tip around avoiding language that is service saturated, uh, which I appreciate. So we've got so many eyes up here. I love this. The uh, collaborative progress note writing sounds like a lot of work when I imagine doing it, but I've heard people explain that it actually saves them so much work in the long run because it becomes such a, a wonderful therapeutic tool. Um, you know, you're really, you're evoking something that is being written down in real time and you're, you're getting to do the note writing in real time so it doesn't have to wait till later. You can be super accurate. You can make sure you're being person-centered and it can be a wonderful reflective process. A lot of what we do as clinicians is reflect things back to individuals so they can hear that. Wow, how amazing it is to be able to see that also at the same time. That could be really powerful. And of course, some challenges could be, uh, you know, uh, if, if you're writing stuff that's super sensitive or if someone gets a little too focused on the note writing versus um, other things that you've got to focus on, I can imagine that there are challenges uh, that come up as well. Let's do an activity. So we're going to read through, similar to the little text blurb I had up a minute ago, we're going to read through a sample case note. Um, and I think what I'll do is ask everyone to just sort of Think about it for a couple minutes. Um, David and I might just chit chat, so there's not radio silence. Um, just read through it for a couple minutes. And if you wanna try and identify uh, parts of it, just like you did with that case note, maybe like a full phrase or a sentence uh, that has a problem that's not terribly person-centered. Um, and we just wanna point out that there's like sort of treatment content that is missing. These are really brief notes. Um, there are sort of decisions that wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily make if you were uh, in their position. And we really kind of wanted to focus around the documentation piece of like, we assume this happened and it may be that the person wasn't being person-centered in what they were doing, um, but in, in, more specifically in how they documented that interaction. Um, right, identify if the areas of improvement are related to practice documentation or both. So you can note that as well. And then if you want to rewrite the, the, the phrase, you can try and rewrite the whole case note, but that might be hard when we've done this in person. It takes people a few minutes to really think through what they would say instead. Uh, so feel free to pluck a sentence out and we'll try and guide you through uh, sharing in just a couple minutes. So our first note uh, is for Jeanette. Um, I'm gonna read it. I spoke to Jeanette on the phone. She had called and left many voicemails the evening prior when I was not working. 
using disrespectful language and threatening to hurt herself. I assessed for homicidal and suicidal ideation, no risk. We discussed that there's a problem with her manipulation tactics that arise when she goes, that when she goes into crisis. She agreed to come to the office to meet with me tomorrow. Okay, so take just a minute or two and feel free to start commenting on what parts you find a problem with first, and then I'll cue you when we can move to doing a little bit of rewriting. David, in the meantime, do you want to say a bit about, I like how you describe avoiding service saturated language. Um, I wonder if you might want to share what that means. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, we certainly saw this in, in, in some of the programs that I would work with, but people were so focused and, and of course the, the intent was good, but people were so focused on you know what we need to i need to get this client into a program what's the road you know they're being resistant um and so let's get them into a drug treatment program let's uh see if we could get a therapist let's see if we can you know send them to this food bank and like again they're all really good things but they like it, it almost felt as you're reading some of those progress notes that you're not like it, we're not talking about a human. And I like how you said that this is a human. And in, mm -hmm. and instead it, was, it wasn't focused on the person. It was simply focused on problem and let's throw a solution at it that's tangible when oftentimes the solution is about the relationship. And while all of those services that we wanna try to engage people with can be really helpful, sometimes it's too much. I, and I, I think that there's so, some of the people we serve, like they have so many different people that they meet with that it can be really overwhelming. And um, sometimes it's helpful to just to take a step back, not be so service saturated, but focus on the relationship, focus on what the person is feeling and, and actually wanting as opposed to we have this match, hopefully, and you should do it. And yeah, mm -hmm. took the humanness out of it. Thank you. I really, I like it when you describe that. It's really helpful. Of course. All right. We have a few comments here. Manipulation tactics. Yes. Manipulation tactics. Wow. Yeah. So we've got that it's loaded. Um, it's abstract, dependent upon interpretation. Oh, sorry. That was disrespectful. Uh, Eric. Now it's rolling up very quickly. <laughs> um, one second, let me get your comments back. Okay, um, moral manipulation tactics. That note is loaded with judgment. Um, let's see here, maybe, okay, we've got a replacement for manipulation tactics. That's great, I'll read through that. Maybe better would be, we discuss challenges that arise for client when she is confronted with crisis and reviewed coping skills. Wonderful. So challenges, um, let's see here, when she is confronted with crisis. So that's that's not judgmental. Um, and then, I, you know, if this note were much longer, we would know what those challenges were. We would know what crisis looks like for that person. Um, and we reviewed coping skills. Great. Um, even if we do think that the client is manipulative, we should avoid using this word directly to a client, right? Manipulative is a, a word that doesn't feel good. It's super, um, I mean, that's up to, it's very subjective. Um, the person who may feel manipulated, it has more to do with their feeling of being, feeling manipulated than anything else, which 
uh, as we know, people do a lot of things to get their emotional needs met. And you can call it manipulative, you can call it something else, you can call it adaptive, you can call it creative. Um, there are many ways to describe that. But for the most part, we don't need those descriptors. We just need to call it like it is um, and describe what the person is actually doing. Okay. When I was not working and plan clients should have known when a good time to call was. So yet again, I am just, I'm a little burnt out and I'm, there's some snark and some spite um, in my writing. Very, very much coming through. I'm also like trying to cover my ass. I'm, I'm saying like, I wasn't working. So sorry. And maybe that's why I did that really uh, non in-depth HISI assessment that I didn't document also. All right. So we've got clients are afraid of losing control by trying to be able to control everything. Mm. Manipulation is a survival tactic as a result of trauma and past experience. We need to have empathy for our clients for sure, right? And we know, we know sometimes when we're feeling like someone is really trying to elicit a response from us that we maybe have set a boundary around that's not being respected, that, that means it's a boundaries issue and an expectation setting issue, right? Okay, so back to the language. Um, I appreciate the uh, the rewrite there. What else is wrong with this? Let's see. Yeah, disrespectful yeah. language. We could unpack. We could just say we could use some quotes. You know, we could be descriptive there. Uh, Vanessa, you know, there should also be a plan for when staff is not in the office. Is right? Yeah. Is there someone covering? There's so there's some practice issues here. Uh, it's really unclear why a, a thorough uh, assessment wasn't um, potentially done or documented, and why someone else isn't um, speaking to her. Should, should, surely there's after-hours coverage. Um, right. Okay. Let's move to a second note. We're going to do the exact same thing. Um, I wrote this note about Bill, and I'm hoping by the end of today, you all think I'm just like a really burnt out, moody clinician, um, since I wrote all these notes myself after these visits that went very poorly. Uh, just kidding. All right, I visited Bill's apartment yesterday. The place was filthy, cluttered, and in disarray. Bill is in denial that he is a hoarder and will likely lose his housing soon. His paranoia prevents him from tolerating any assistance in cleaning the place and throwing out his garbage. Bill tried to fire me today for talking about it. He needs a higher level of care. So I will say this note is inspired by, I, I heard this basically uh, spoken about in a case presentation, part of it at least, and then I've added on a bit more. Um, but I've actually heard some of this, these phrases being used in describing a situation uh, that, uh, like what Bill is going through. And I don't know, different teams operate in different ways and have different documentation sort of uh, protocols and standards, but I sure know I've seen some of these notes before in teams that I've uh, sort of taken over supervision of, certainly wasn't my training. Um, I, I've seen this before, you know, and it's okay if people just didn't know, right? Sometimes I think back to my grad school and was I taught documentation and avoiding, was I taught person-centered documentation? I'm not entirely sure that I was. I think, you know, there's a focus on objectivity, but past that, you know, diagnostic labels and things like that, um, that was pretty commonplace. So as we move into, I think, hopefully as a whole, working to be more recovery-oriented and person-centered across the entire mental health care systems that we work in, 
we want to push this a bit further and challenge these instances when they arise. Okay, so what's going on with me and Bill? You noted filthy, cluttered in a disarray, denial needs a higher level of care, problematic. Yep. Bill tried to fire me and really speaks to how insecure and frustrated this note writer is feeling. So Bill may have tried to fire me. He may have said, I'm not working with you anymore. Find me someone else. I'm done with you. That might have happened, but I need to actually describe that. And it's not entirely, it may or may not be relevant to the note that I'm writing. That's, that's, we don't really know that here. Um, okay, a hoarder using a noun to label someone like a schizophrenic invalidating and so subjective too. I am personally, I have a, a bit of a opinion or bias around um, hoarding as a, as, a, as a term or in hoarder in particular. I just feel like it, it carries such a negative connotation. There's some stigma around it. There's a, a very sensationalized show on TV called Hoarders, which tries, I mean, oh, oof, if you're familiar, you, you get it. Um, Maybe there are some other ways to describe that, even though it is a, it's really, you know, it is a diagnosis, maybe excessive collecting. Um, someone else on our team threw out a really lovely substitute. Well, if you could think of it, David, chime in. I can't at the time. Oh, gosh. I, and I don't think Sasha is on the line, but she's the one who. Yeah. who if it comes it. to us, we'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So being more objective would be helpful. Right, it's very negative and no solution. You know, this again may be a bit of a, just a larger note writing issue. There's not a whole lot of like, I'm just passing the buck and saying he needs a higher level of care. He's fired me. I'm not really saying what the intervention is going to be and what the plan is. Um, so there's some huge components missing. I'm just mostly uh, labeling, judging, inventing. Um, he needs a higher level of care. The client is in need of help, but the client just not be in an action phase of change. It doesn't mean he needs a higher level of care, right? So there's nothing in here that shows that I've explored the meaning of the items that Bill has collected or behaviorally what his challenges are around um, cleaning. Uh, and if there were hygiene issues, true ones, I could describe those in another way. Filthy and cluttered and disarray. Clutter tells me a little bit um, and disarray sounds a little subjective. They both are pretty subjective. Filthy. Yeah, I think we need to we need to describe. We need to say there's rotting food in the kitchen. There are 20 trash bags in a closet. There are stacks of magazines up to uh, my waist. You know, things like that can be more descriptive of like what the picture is, what the risk is. I should also be talking about uh, safety. Uh, so many other things should be in this note. Um, all right, discuss with Bill how his excessive collecting may be affecting his housing, putting it in jeopardy. Yeah, fire hazard for sure. That's certainly something to uh, discuss. Um, but you say this note both stigmatizes and labels the client is judgmental. It could have said, spoke with client regarding assistance training and household care and cleaning. Okay, yeah, encourage client to talk about what might be going on. Great, all right, keep it, keeping it pretty simple. Um, what, you know, what, what, how, we want to be helpful here and there's absolutely nothing helpful in this note. So for starters, uh, changing the practice and then, um, yeah, framing it from a, a more strengths and uh, supportive stance. Okay, wonderful. We're going to move on from this exercise. Thank you for participating. Let's talk about bias. So switching gears a little bit here. <sighs> Bias has been peppered into our conversation thus far um, in terms of 
kind of how a stigma and stereotypes feed into it. Um, and just to uh, simply, simply put, there are two types of bias. We've got explicit and implicit. Explicit is the stuff we know we feel, right? It's the biases that we, we know we have. Um, you know, let, I'm trying to think of a good example. Let's say people who are openly um, uh, classist, racist, sexist, you know, those are biases that they probably know they have. They have a strong opinion about a certain group and a feeling, but they are not hiding it. That's something that they are also being explicit about, but it can be a little more subtle too, as long as like, you know, if you are aware that you have a bias, maybe you don't share it. Maybe it's a prejudice you have that you don't uh, voice it. Either way, those are explicit. Implicit, that's the stuff that's kind of sneaky. So implicit bias comes from our, usually our rearing environments or the, the sets of stereotypes, values, norms that we grew up with or have, have absorbed and experienced throughout our lives. Um, and they're outside of our awareness. They actually typically don't match our explicit beliefs, our, the values that we know we hold. Um, again, yeah, related to repeated exposure from certain cultural stereotypes. Um, they could be the opposite of what you grew up with too. Sometimes that can be a dynamic that occurs. They manifest institutionally and interpersonally. And what that means is we can have, I can have a bias towards David about something that I'm unaware of, an implicit bias. And it can also impact uh, access to and quality of care. Um, that's the institutional piece. And so I wanna just share a little bit of data here. Um, a study conducted in the mid-aughts, so 2004, um, demonstrated that patient-physician communication differed when the patient was African-American, even after taking into account access to care, insurance status, and the complexity of healthcare. Physicians were 23% more verbally dominant and 33% less patient-centered with African-American patients versus white patients. So that's interpersonal, but then it's also institutional. Because if you have a physician, someone, an MD that holds a lot of power, consistently treating a group of people uh, in a different way, in sort of subtle ways that are, would be really hard to pin down, really hard to identify that, um, that a clinic is being verbally dominant, right? That's, that's something that would be really tricky, except for those that do this sort of research. We can't quite uh, discern that at times. Um, other impacts to services would include being kept waiting longer. Again, a really sort of subtle thing, uh, but it's important. Um, providers may also vary in the extent to which they collaborate with patients in systematic ways, like recommending different treatment options for patients based on assumptions about their ability to adhere to the treatment. So if I am biased against hmm, Bill, uh, for whatever reason, maybe heat bill is on disability and I have an implicit bias against people who uh, are on disability, I might, that might change what options I offer him and not in like a pragmatic, this is what you qualify for way, but it might limit what I view he can participate in treatment wise. And that's problematic. We need to be able to see every person as sort of like this, just a uh, the a blank slate, the same person. We need to go through and assess and consider every option uh, equally across all identities. 
um, failing to provide interpreters when needed. So little things like not just courtesies, that's beyond a courtesy that's providing quality care that can be overlooked if someone maybe has a implicit bias against those who do not speak English in an English dominant uh, provider setting. Um, granting special privileges, such as allowing some families to visit patients after hours while limiting visitation for other families. So again, some little kind of customer service things uh, that people can, can uh, manipulate to impact quality and access to care. All right, whoopsie, sorry, didn't mean to, I have a very skittish mouse here that wants to scroll. <laughs> um, I think, you know, Hmm. Another really critical thing to say about implicit bias is that we all have them. It's extremely normal. It's not something to feel shame about. I think it is common to feel a little um, discomfort as we uncover our implicit biases. If anyone's ever done one of the assessments or gone through a training on implicit bias, uh, I went through one um, where actually we, we went around a table very briefly and shared all the, the implicit bias that we each had. And I have to say, I, it was not the way I would do a training, nor am I gonna ask you to share your implicit biases in this context, uh, because we all shared one. And then the, the training went on and we never really debriefed about that. And we all kind of, I could tell we are all these, you know, social workers looking around each other like, oh, I'm sorry. I think my implicit bias may have offended you or at least wondering about that because we're compassionate, caring people and we are compassionate, caring people, but these things just are there. They're, they're in our, our, our histories. They're in, um, they're in the way we've learned to make sense of the world and they're not bad. So we really owe no apologies to each other at that table, but being kind, compassionate folks, we all were just like, Oh, gosh, this is weird. So I really want to normalize that if you do some exploration of your potential implicit biases, not to be hard on yourself, to be gentle, uh, to just respect that it's it's just a piece of probably your history and nothing more. And then once it is explicit, you can decide what to do with it. And you can make sure you're not one of those providers impacting access to or quality of care like the ones in the study I just mentioned. If you do find that you've got some, it's something you can bring up in supervision, you can do some process work around it and ensure that it's not interfering. Um, let's see, what have we got next? We're gonna play a video and I'll just, in the meantime, Dave, David's gonna load up that video, I believe, and play it from his end. Um, I've got an example of my own implicit bias just to maybe uh, sort of elucidate the point. Um, I, so I'm a huge harm reductionist, as I've probably mentioned. I don't even know how many times in a training that's not about harm reduction, I mentioned harm reduction, but it's probably a lot. I'm trying to subliminally message. <laughs> um, but it's something that's really important to me and I, I've worked with drug users my entire career and like someone, I have just no, no judgment, no prejudice, no judgment. You know, I, I, I hate it when I see people experiencing harms related to substance use. It, it causes me pain. I, I don't want them to be unwell. I want them to be okay, but I have no judgment on it. I have no bias against it. Um, and I'll really work with someone to support their autonomy and help them think through the benefits and costs of their substance use. But I'll never ever, that bias won't come up for me like it does when I work with someone, and this comes from my background, if I'm working with someone that's got like maybe some physical health ailments that struggling with obesity or diabetes, if I see someone, you know, walking in my office and drinking a big, a, 
a big old cup of Coke or Sprite or something sugary, I will have a judgment. I will sit there and something will go off in my head deep back here. That's like, really, that's what you're going to do that you're going to drink soda while you were working on your diabetes. That's, that's it. What's that? Because I will excuse the choices of the heroin user that is causing harm to themselves by using that drug, but I have something that will go off in my head. And what will happen then? I might not say anything. In fact, I definitely won't say anything like, what are you doing with that soft drink? But I might just act a little bit, maybe I'll be a little more tense. Maybe I'll be less interested. Maybe I'll be a little impatient. Maybe I'll, you know, just not want to hear how that person's week has been in the same way. Maybe I will set an agenda and not talk about it initially, but then be like, can we talk about uh, your A1C and your, your nutrition education? Maybe I'll, I'll try and be helpful with it, but I'll, I'll, have, I'll have a bias, essentially. And in the worst case, I could, I could say that thing. I could make a judgmental comment and actually harm the relationship that I have with the person and hurt them. Um, by judging. So for me, that's something that I, in my ex exploration of my own implicit biases, I've had to address and be like, okay, I've, I've got one. And where does it come from? I grew up in the Southeast. Obesity is rampant in my family. A number of people have heart conditions and diabetes. And I fear for them. I fear for their well-being. Um, and everyone drinks sodas and sweet tea in the South. <laughs> like is I did too. I, I still drink it when I'm there. Um, so that's, that's where that comes from. It's, 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 a it's some degree of like personal emotional experience and how I relate to a, a certain uh, symbol and also um, stereotypes and culture um, and what I absorb. So we're going to watch a video now. Uh, it's a TED Talk with Verna Myers, who's going to speak uh, more in depth on implicit bias. I was on a long road trip this summer, and I was having a wonderful time listening to the amazing Isabella Wilkerson's Warmth of Other Suns. It documents six million black folks fleeing the South from 1915 to 1970, looking for a respite from all the brutality and trying to get to a better opportunity up north. And it was filled with stories of the resilience and the brilliance of African Americans. And it was also really hard to hear all the stories of the horrors and the humility and all of the humiliations. It was especially hard to hear about the beatings and the burnings and the lynchings of black men. And I said, you know, this is a little deep. I, I, I need a break. I, I'm going to turn on the radio. I turned it on, and there it was. Ferguson, Missouri. Michael Brown. 18-year-old black man, unarmed, shot by a white police officer, laid on the ground, dead, blood running for four hours while his grandmother and little children and his neighbors watched in horror. And I thought, here it is again. This violence, this brutality against black men has been going on for centuries. I mean, it's the same story. It's just different 
different names. I mean, it could have been Amadou Diallo. It could have been Sean Bell. It could have been Oscar Grant. It could have been Trayvon Martin. This violence, this brutality, is really something that's part of our national psyche. It's part of our collective history. What are we going to do about it? You know that part of us that still crosses the street, locks the doors, clutches the purses when we see young black men. That part. I mean, I know we're not shooting people down in the street, but I'm saying that the same stereotypes and prejudices that fuel those kinds of tragic incidents are in us. We've been schooled in them as well. I believe that we can stop these types of incidents, these Fergusons, from happening. By looking within, and being willing to change ourselves, so I have a call to action for you. There are three things that I want to offer us today to think about as ways to stop Ferguson from happening again. Three things that I think will help us reform our images of young black men. Three things that I'm hoping will not only protect them but will open the world so that they can thrive. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine our country embracing young black men, seeing them as part of our future, giving them that kind of openness, that kind of grace we give to people we love? How much better would our lives be? How much better would our country be? Let me just start with number one. We got to get out of denial. We don't need. Stop trying to be good people. We need real people. You know, I do a lot of diversity work, and people will come up to me at the beginning of a workshop. They're like, "Oh, Miss Diversity Lady, we're so glad you're here." <laughs> But we don't have a bias bone in our body. And I'm like, really? Because I do this work every day, and I see all my biases. I mean, not too long ago, I was on a plane, and I heard the voice of a woman's woman pilot coming over the PA system, and I was just like, so excited! I was so thrilled. I was like, yes, women, we are rocking it. We are now in the stratosphere. You know, it was all good. And then it started getting turbulent and bumpy, and I was like, I hope she can drive. I know, right? But it is not even like I knew that was a bias until I was coming back on the other leg. There's always a guy driving, and it's often turbulent and bumpy. And I've never questioned the competence of the male driver, the pilot. It's good. Now here's the here's the problem. It's like if you ask me explicitly, I would say female pilot, awesome. But it appears that when things get funky and a little troublesome, a little risky. I lean on a bias that I didn't even know that I had. You know, fast-moving planes in the sky. I want a guy. That's my default. Men are my default. Who is your default? Who do you trust? Who are you afraid of? Who do you implicitly feel connected to? Who do you run away from? 
I'm going to tell you what we have learned, the implicit association test, which measures unconscious bias. You can go online and take it. Five million people have taken it. Turns out our default is white. We like white people. We prefer white. What do I mean by that? When people are shown images of black men and white men, we are more quickly able to associate that picture with a positive word, that white person with a positive word, than we are when we are trying to associate positive with a black face. And vice versa, when we see a black face, it is more easily, it's easier for us to connect black with negative than it is white with negative. 70% of white people taking that test prefer white. 50% of black people taking that test prefer white. You see, we were all outside when the contamination came down. What do we do about the fact that our brain automatically associates? You know, one of the things that you probably are thinking about, you're probably like, you know what? I'm just going to double down on my color blindness. Yes, I'm going to recommit to that. I'm going to suggest to you, no. We've gone about as far as we can go trying to make a difference, trying to not see color. The problem was never that we saw color. It was what we did when we saw the color. It's a false ideal. And while we're busy pretending not to see, we are not being aware of the ways in which racial difference is changing people's possibilities. That's keeping them from thriving, and sometimes it's causing them an early death. So, in fact, what the scientists are telling us is it's a, no way. Don't, don't even think about colorblindness. In fact, what they're suggesting is stare at awesome black people. <laughs> Look at them directly in their faces and memorize them, because when we look at awesome folks who are black, it helps to dissociate the association that happens automatically in our brain. Why do you think I'm showing you these beautiful black men behind me? There were not enough. There were so many. I had to cut them. Okay. So here's the thing. I'm trying to reset your automatic associations about who black men are. I'm trying to remind you that young black men grow up to be amazing human beings who have changed our lives and made them better. So here's the thing. The other possibility in science, and it's only temporarily changing our automatic assumptions, but one thing we know is that if you take a white person who is like odious, uh, that you know, and stick it up next to a person of color, a black person who's fabulous, then that sometimes actually causes us to disassociate too. So, you know, think like um, Jeffrey Dahmer and Colin Powell. Like, just stare at them, right? <laughs> But these are the things. So go looking for your bias. Please, please just get out of denial and go looking for disconfirming data that will prove that, in fact, your old stereotypes are wrong. Okay? So that's number one. Number two, what I'm going to say is move toward young black men instead of away from them. And you know, it's not the hardest thing to do, but it's also 
It's, it, it, it's one of these things where you have to be conscious and intentional about it. You know, I was on a Wall Street um, um, area one time, like maybe uh, several years ago, and I was with a colleague of mine, and she's really wonderful, and she does diversity work with me, and she's a woman of color, she's Korean. And we were outside, it was late at night, and we were sort of wondering where we were going, we were lost, and I saw this person across the street, and I was thinking, oh, great black guy. You know, I was going toward him without even thinking about it. And she was like, oh, that's interesting. The guy across the street, you know, he was a black guy. I think, uh, you know, black guys generally know where they're going. Like, I don't, I don't know why exactly I think that, but this is what I think. Okay, so <laughs> she was saying, oh, you were going, yay, black guy? She said I was going, <gasps> black guy. Other direction, same need, same guy, same clothes, same time, same street. Different reaction. And she said, I feel so bad. I'm a diversity consultant. I did the black guy thing. I'm a woman of color. Oh my God. And I said, you know what? Please, we really need to relax about this. I mean, you got to realize I go way back with black guys. <laughs> my dad is a black guy. You see what I'm saying? I got a six foot five black guy son. I was married to a black guy. My black guy thing is so wide and so deep that I can pretty much sort and figure out who that black guy is. And he was my black guy. He said, yes, ladies, I know where you're going. I'll take you there. You know, biases are the stories we make up about people before we know who they actually are. But how are we going to know who they are when we've been told to avoid and be afraid of them? So I'm going to tell you to walk toward your discomfort. And I'm not asking you to take any crazy risks. I'm saying just do an inventory. Expand your social and professional circles. Just like who's in your circle? Who's missing? How many authentic relationships do you have with young black people, folks? men, women, or any other major difference from who you are and how you roll, so to speak. Because you know what, you know, there may be, just look around your periphery, there may be somebody at work, in your classroom, in your house of worship, somewhere, there's some black young guy there, and you're nice, you say hi, I'm saying go deeper, closer, further, and build the kinds of relationships, the kinds of friendships that actually cause you to see the holistic person and to really go against the stereotypes. I know some of you are out there, I know, because I have some white friends in particular, they will say, you have no idea how awkward I am? Like, I don't think this is going to work for me. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to blow this. Okay, maybe, but this thing is not about perfection. It's about connection. And... You're not going to get comfortable before you get uncomfortable. I mean, you just have to do it. And young black men, what I'm saying is, if someone comes your way genuine and authentically, take the invitation. Not everyone is out to get you. Go looking for those people who can see your humanity. You know, it's the empathy and the compassion that comes out of having relationships with people who are different from you, something really powerful and beautiful happens, you start to realize that they are you, that they're part of you, that they are in your family. And then we cease to be bystanders and we become actors, we become advocates and we become allies. So go away 
from your comfort into a bigger, brighter thing, because that is how we will stop another Ferguson from happening. That's how we create a community where everybody, especially young black men, can thrive. So this. This last thing is going to be harder, and I know it, but I'm just going to put it out there anyway. When we see something, we have to have the courage to say something, even to the people we love. You know, it's holidays, and it's going to be a time when we're sitting around the table and having a good time. With many of us, anyway, we'll be in holidays, and you know, you got to listen to the conversations around the table. You start to say things like. Grandma's a bigot. <laughs> Uncle Joe is racist, and you know we love Grandma and we love Uncle Joe. We do. We know they're good people, but what they're saying is wrong. And we need to be able to say something because you know who else is at the table? The children are at the table. And we wonder why these biases don't die and move from generation to generation because we're not saying anything. We got to be willing to say, Grandma, we don't call people that anymore. Uncle Joe, it isn't true that he deserved that. No one deserves that. And we've got to be willing to not shelter. Our children from the ugliness of racism when black parents don't have the luxury to do so, especially those who have young black sons. We got to take our lovely darlings, our future, and we got to tell them we have an amazing country with incredible ideals. We have worked incredibly hard, and we have made some progress, but we are not done. We still have in us this old stuff about superiority, and it is causing us to embed those further into our institutions and our society and generations, and it is making for despair and disparities and a devastating devaluing of young black men. We still struggle. You have to tell them with seeing both the color. And the character of young black men, but that you, and you expect them to be part of the forces of change in this society that will stand against injustice, and is willing, above all other things, to make a society where young black men can be seen for all of who they are. So many. Amazing black men, those who are the most amazing statesmen that have ever lived, brave soldiers, awesome, hardworking laborers. These are people who are powerful preachers. They are incredible scientists and artists and writers. They are. Dynamic comedians, they are doting grandpas, caring sons. They are strong fathers, and they are young men 
with dreams of their own. Thank you. Thank you for watching that video. I know it takes a different focus than what we've directly been talking about, but I'd encourage you to think about, let's take any identity and think about what she's thrown out there. Um, the histories, the dynamics might be different culturally, but it's important for us to think through every identity and all of the different variants of it. Um, and who is your default? Who do you trust? Who are you afraid of? Who do you implicitly feel connected to? And who do you run away from? Those are the questions she poses. Um, and at the same time, we could one of those identities could be someone who's living with mental illness and how, how we can think through implicit biases that we might even have around those that we serve um, and what those mean. So we're gonna switch gears now and David's gonna round out the day talking about trauma Thanks, Elizabeth. Yeah, it's such a wonderful video. And, um, you know, as I was watching it, she makes such a great point that ties so nicely into what we're going to talk about with trauma, because she talks about those associations that that we make and how we have to, um, you know, in, in how she's talking about it, she's talking about those associations of, um, of negative thoughts to certain people, specifically Black men. And it's really the, a very similar process when we're talking about trauma because people who have experienced trauma, there are these associations that are created um, in really the same part of the brain and we have to work to kind of dissociate those. Um, and, and so I'm gonna, of course, talk more about that. And um, this is a, a huge topic and we are gonna be doing its own training collaborative. So, a, you know, a five and a half hour, six hour training just on trauma informed care. So the next 10 minutes, I'm going to, you know, try to encapsulate that. Um, so I'll do my best. But I'm going to start off actually by sharing a story of, of a woman that I had worked with when I lived in New Orleans. And of course, uh, different circumstances, you know, she, she wasn't somebody who uh, she, she was different than maybe the individuals that you work with in FSP programs. She didn't have as many needs as those. So I do want to acknowledge that. Um, but we're going to be focusing on this trauma piece. So, um, so this client, and I'm just going to keep referring to her as this client. So I, I apologize about that. I should have thought about that beforehand. But um, this client, she, uh, she came to me because she was experiencing a lot of anxiety. And this was after Hurricane Katrina, after we had opened up everything, not everything, but, you know, in that road to recovery. And, uh, you know, she came to me and she said, you know, she's feeling really anxious. Um, she's scared. She has a hard time sleeping. She's afraid to drive over. Um, uh, the, the bridge, we, the bridge there had a few names, uh, either like the GNO, we often called it, um, but it's the big one in New Orleans that goes over the Mississippi River. And, um, and of course, I'm thinking like, yes, this has everything to do with Hurricane Katrina. And, and she shared with me her experiences during the storm. And, you know, she had lost everything. She had lost her brother, who she was very close with. He had, um, you know, he wasn't able to evacuate in time. They rescued him and they pulled him out of some of those floodwaters. And unfortunately, he caught himself during that process and ended up getting um, 
poison through all of the how dirty the water is and he died a few days later and just a really tragic experience and so all of this in my head i'm thinking yeah this is of course ptsd and this is definitely related to hurricane katrina and and it wasn't a way but we talked about her sleeping and she tells me she's like i only sleep in my lazy boy and my lazy boy is in the living room and it faces the front door and so i'm thinking well you should stop sleeping in the lazy boy and sleep in a bed that might actually help things and of course i didn't say it quite like that but I, I couldn't, I was really stuck with, you know, here's a really easy solution um, for your sleeping issues, but she wasn't willing to do that. Well, I worked with her for, for, for many, uh, for a total of six years. And after about a year and a half, she finally disclosed to me, because we developed this really close relationship or, or a close therapeutic relationship, she shared with me that when she was 25, and, and I might have gotten that age wrong, at, at that time when I was seeing her, she was in her late 50s. And she's like, I've never shared this with anyone in my life. She's like, but I, you know, when I was living in the projects and I lived with my mom, she was, you know, she was still an adult, but living with her mom in, in a housing project there. Um, someone come into her window at night, broke in, and they raped her. And she's like, I've never shared that with anybody. You know, of course, her mom knew. Her mom has since passed away. And so that all of a sudden for me, it clicked. I'm like, oh, my gosh, no wonder. It, it made more sense to why she was sleeping in this lazy boy facing the front door. And so we were finally able to talk about that and i'm like well what what is this about and she's like well if anyone's going to come in my apartment i want to be the very first person to see who's coming through that door i may not be able to do anything about it but i'm going to be in control i'm going to know that that they are invading my space and she didn't know that she didn't uh, of course, know that somebody was invading her space, you know, she was sleeping, and then, of course, they woke her up, and then horrible things happened, um, but all of a sudden, the context made a lot more sense, and so what happened to this client during that time, 25, or it wasn't 25 years ago, when she was 25, so like maybe 30, 35 years prior, was that her brain made these connections with it, it, her brain created this memory because it went into that mode of being traumatized. That fight or flight response was activated. And when it was activated, her mind was able to make these connections of, okay, when, you know, if, if I'm not able to see what's happening, I am vulnerable. Something bad can happen to me. Uh, if I feel fear, then I need to be hypervigilant and, and, try to figure out what's going around me and my surroundings. And those associations, similar to what Verna Myers was talking about, those associations, they're not things that you can simply say, oh, I realize that. And you know, maybe I could just lock my door and make sure that it's extra secure, get an alarm system and sleep upstairs. That's not how it, how it works. Those connections are embedded and ingrained so deeply in our brains. And so while those reactions make sense during the time that trauma was, was taking place, oftentimes they don't 
make sense in present day, but we can't just turn those things off. The first part is, of course, developing a strong relationship so that individual can um, maybe begin to share some of those experiences with us as professionals. And then, you know, now I'm kind of going into treatment here, and that's not exactly my intent, but, you know, in a nutshell, it's like we want to dissociate some of those things and, uh, and try to learn new behaviors to respond in ways so our brains realize that, oh, it's, it's okay, like that was the case in the past, but now it's okay because I'm not in that threatening situation anymore. So let's take that example of that client and apply it to maybe something that we often experience with FSP. And you know, one of the and someone had uh, very eloquently eloquently stated when we were talking earlier about you know that concept of manipulative behavior. And and someone had shared in the comments that that manipulative behavior actually served a purpose and that kept them alive. And you are exactly right. And I, I forgot who said it, and it'll take me forever to scroll to give you proper credit. But that's exactly it, because let's think about somebody who has some of these manipulative behaviors. Um, oftentimes, we are quick to label them as having borderline personality disorder. And that diagnosis may or may not be correct for that individual. But I've never worked with anyone who has borderline personality disorder and not also had a significant trauma history. I'm not saying that that case doesn't exist. Like I'm sure there are individuals who have the personality disorder who have not had trauma. I just have never experienced it. Um, so taking that though, you know, somebody who has maybe a diagnosis of, of borderline personality disorder, we know that one of those behaviors that is often typical there is that I, I love you today. So, you know, I am your client and Elizabeth is my is my FSP worker. And I might say, Elizabeth, you've been so helpful. Like, I don't know what I would do without you. I You have done everything for me. You've been so amazing. And now, does this ring true for some of you who've, who've had this experience? I go to see Elizabeth the next week and I say, hey, Elizabeth, can I get a a bus token or a bus pass just so I could get home. And Elizabeth's like, no, I'm sorry, I don't have any. And then I say, you know what, fuck you, I hate you and I'm never coming to see you again. Yep, <laughs> oh, Elizabeth, that was you who said that. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else has had that experience as well and you don't have to share it, you could just say yes or maybe maybe no. Um, but what that, what that is, is that we, let's take that behavior and put it in its actual context of, perhaps that individual has experienced trauma in their lives. And perhaps that trauma that they've experienced had to do with relationships. Maybe they were abused as a child. Maybe they were abused as an adult in a domestic violence relationship. And so that whole concept of what a relationship means has been, been fragmented. So, you know, it, it, again, if I'm this, this individual and Elizabeth is my therapist, perhaps I have a history and I, I'm not saying this is true for me, I'm just using an example, but perhaps I have this history of being abused as a child where, yeah, my, my father or mother or whoever it was, I sought their protection and um, they were somebody who was supposed to show love and compassion for me and instead they caused me harm and they instilled fear. So those neurons, those networks that we make in our brain, brain were really ingrained in us. And so now I carry that with me and I have this idea that anyone who is going to be caring for me 
they might turn and, and, and instill fear. They might hurt me. And I can't just turn that off, just like we can't turn off that, uh, like, like uh, Verna Myers, where, you know, she says, we, we can't just turn it off. We have to uh, prove our brain something different. So, um, so here I come into Elizabeth's office and she starts to show me love and compassion. And I start to feel good because that's a relationship I've been craving. But then all of a sudden my brain, my amygdala, which is this little piece in my brain, it's, it starts to send these signals to the hypothalamus, which is another part of my brain that says, warning, this is a close relationship developing. And remember what happened last time you had that close relationship, you were hurt. So I need to raise this flag. So all of a sudden Elizabeth showed one sign of not total love and compassion, which really isn't that, that's not true. She just simply wasn't able to do something that I expected. But regardless, I interpreted that as something else and that triggered this intense response. And I responded and I pushed her away. So, you know, that's trauma in a really, really brief nutshell. Um, so here's just like a really quick example of when we have non-traumatic memories, all of those sensations are neatly stored and, and put away in their appropriate files. So if I want to think about the feeling of when I had this event or about, you know, what the environmental condition, I could easily go in that file, pull it out, and then put it back when I'm done having that experience. But when our memories are traumatic, everything gets it's fragmented. They're not stored appropriately. So things are, are tied to things in a way that doesn't necessarily make sense in the present. So it's not as easy to access those memories. Just like it's not easy for me if I was that client of Elizabeth's to say, no, this is, this is not a parent. This is not somebody who's going to harm you. This is somebody who's showing you compassion. Um, Instead, I, I pulled from a file that, that was connected to fear, and I responded. I was really responding to a past moment, but in the present moment, and it, it, and it wasn't the right response. The, uh, one of the key things in providing trauma-informed care is to know some of these points, that it really impacts how people view the world. And that's not a conscious, it's not a, I'm choosing to view the world through, my, uh, through the eyes of my past traumas. No, it, it's not that easy. Um, we do have to prove in the context of a trusting relationship, and oftentimes that's us. That's us as the mental health professionals. We have to form that trusting relationship so we can help that individual who's experienced trauma create new memories to prove that those old ones, they don't apply to the present moment. Safety and control are incredibly critical in providing care and be, in being trauma-informed. And I really briefly touched on it, but it really does have a uh, impact on our neurochemical stress response. If, you were, if we were able to look inside my brain or look inside someone who's experienced significant trauma, and then look inside, inside the brain of somebody who has not experienced significant trauma, there are measurable, clear, objective differences there. And it doesn't mean that that can't be fixed. It can't be, it, it could be fixed. It could be undone. Um, not that the memories will go away, but we can make new connections um, that will allow people who've experienced trauma to act, to respond in a more adaptive manner. Um, 
And everyone, uh, we can never predict who's going to have trauma and who isn't because we all have different resiliency factors. We all have different perceptions of our world and we have different experiences. Just like, you know, if I got into a car accident versus somebody else, we are gonna respond differently even though we may have experienced a very similar event. We really want you to take away two key components uh, regarding trauma in that we utilize a trauma-informed lens to foster compassion and understand others' behaviors. What that means is you, you don't need to know specifically what somebody has experienced. It's almost safer to just assume that everybody has some sort of trauma in their history. So we are always being coming from this compassionate and almost curious lens. Like, so when somebody responds in a way that may seem a little bit odd or may not seem consistent, we, we could tell ourselves, oh, you know what, maybe they're, they've experienced a, 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 something traumatic in their history. And I need to just be a little bit careful. I need to be sensitive. And if I make a mistake, it's okay. Like we might make a mistake. We might say something that triggers people. As long as we could acknowledge it, and, and change how we work with that person. And then use a language that reinforces safety and control for the person being served. And this is so consistent with recovery-oriented care and person-centered care. We don't want to be in control of, uh, of the path of recovery for the, for the individuals we serve. They need to be in control of that. That's person-centered. That's also recovery-oriented, but then even more importantly, maybe more importantly, it's being trauma-informed. And we also want to, the best we can, reinforce their safety. Um, we want to create a space, whether that safety is a physical sense of safety or whether it's even just uh, safety in, in the sense of trust and that we're not going to we're not going to talk bad about our, the people we serve. We're not going to share details of their experience with people who don't need to know those things. Um, we're going to respect their confidentiality. Um, all of that goes into creating the sense of safety. So those are really the two main pieces that we want to we want you to uh, take with you from this part because it's uh, you can't be recovery oriented. I don't believe you could be recovery oriented if you're not coming from this trauma-informed lens. So as you can probably gather, I can talk lots about this, um, and, and I will, along with Elizabeth, when we do our training collaborative um, later on in the summer, um, possibly early, no, I guess summer, I think we're still trying to figure that out. But, uh, but anyways, it's such an important concept. So with that, I think this is kind of the end of the day for today. Um, I see a question from Karen uh, asking about whether we have other training topics available on our website. So are other presentations trainings available on your website? Yes. So if you go to our website, uh, which is pmhp.ucla.edu, um, you can go to training at home. It's going to be in the upper right, a button at the top on our homepage. And that will include a bunch of trainings that we've just done, uh, sort of similar to this, a PowerPoint and Zoom. Um, so you can hear us speaking along with uh, the PowerPoint content. Um, we also have some older trainings. We have some recordings from our first FSP conference last year that are available online. We also have access to some online modules from the Center for Practice Innovations out of New York City. They do a bunch of clinical topic modules that 
we have a contract with them to make those available specifically to FSP. So please go on and explore that. We also have a, what else do we have on the website? We have a, a COVID-19 resource list that might be useful to you, but for sure there will be more and more recorded trainings on there, some from our team. And then we're facilitating um, sort of experts or guest speakers ongoing um, over the coming weeks for as long as we are doing this remote style work. So you can check our calendar on a weekly basis and see what we've got up next. Thanks again for everyone's time and attention. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you all on Friday.